Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also follow us on Facebook. You can subscribe to our feed, get new episodes when they're released for the public. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on Podcasts, listen, leave reviews where possible, help others find the program. We also point you toward patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free, as it is now. There's entry level for uh, support. You know, you want to say good job, guys? That's the level for you. Also, some voting privileges on various uh, uh, future shows. Mid-level for early access to shows and those shows at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level bestest friends for early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered episodes, playlists for our shows, and more. All of that at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? All right. I don't know, Scott. I'm a little sedate. I'm I'm podcasting from the car here. I'm out on the road again. I just rolled myself one. I'm thinking I might just, uh, I don't know, pull over to the side of the road and take a nap. <laughs> don't nap too long. You'll miss releasing four albums in the next 12 months or so. Uh, yeah. Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. As you know, if you're tuned in, this is part two of our two-part look at the music and career of Willie Nelson. And thankfully, our guest from part one has returned. That's Jesse Walker. He is book's editor of Reason. His uh, book, Rebels on the Air, an alternative history of radio in America. And his second book, The United States of Paranoia, a conspiracy theory. Find him on Twitter at NotJesseWalker. Jesse, thank you so much for coming back and joining us for part two of this truck through Willie Nelson's career. I'm I'm glad to be on the road again. Many, many good reviews and feedback from our part one, which took us all the way up through uh, 1974 or so. And now we have the opportunity to cover uh, 1975 to present and the 842 different albums <laughs> Willie has released in that time period. And each of them will be discussed in loving detail. <laughs> Buckle in for a nice 14-hour long ride, folks. No. No, of course we're not going to be doing that. And that's this. This is the part of Willie's career that is full of paradoxes. This is the part of his career where he increases his he experiences his greatest commercial success, his greatest critical success. He explodes, becomes a living legend, not only of country but crosses over into the mainstream. Yes. and he puts out 140 billion albums, as we've already discussed several times on the show. And yet, also he. We'll be noting this several times. Sort of stops writing original songs in a lot of ways, and sort of develops an interpretive bent uh, uh, to sort of go with his 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 old songbook. And why why does he do that? Well, I guess it's probably because of this sequence of albums that starts out the show. Where did we leave off last time? Well, you have a spare three hours. Go listen to Willie Nelson Part 1. You're going to learn about how a guy turned from a disc jockey, you know, uh, you know, humping records up in the Pacific Northwest, went back, became a little Texas, you know, like regional star, worked his way up, became a well-respected Nashville songwriter, but not really selling records under his own name for a long time. And then finally, somewhere around the turn of the 70s, you know, 
the, the ignition started once on yesterday's wine, but he didn't really find his footing until he left RCA Records, and he went to Atlantic, where they had a bit of a soul background. They were a little bit more, more unorthodox. They were willing to let him experiment. That That's where you got the great albums, Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages, and that's where we left off. And these were really kind of well-developed albums. They were you know, deep, like, you know, country, soul, blues, music, and on Phases and Stages, you had a conceptual, like, idea that was really fleshed out and delivered, like, with a full punch, hit home all the way. So what does Willie Nelson do for a follow-up? Well, the first thing he does, of course, is change labels. What? Gets an even better deal, my friend. <laughs> After slaving away at RCA for so long, he swung that Atlantic deal, got those two records. And boy, we would have all loved to hear more Atlantic records. I've got good news for you, folks. We will. Um, but instead, his manager got him an even better deal with Columbia Records. And yeah, although... So- we should say Atlantic also closed its country division. Oh, so yes. There was, there was a bit of an impetus beyond they were gonna uh, just fold him. They were going to fold him into the main label, though. And he, and he said, like, I don't want to have anything to do with it because you won't give me the same kind of support that I would have otherwise had on the country thing. And then, boom, he goes to Columbia. He gets a great deal. And he gets something that is, again, close to sort of, if not complete creative control, which you will have soon enough, very close to it. Because what's the first thing he decides to do? Well, he's going to follow up on phases and stages. That was a, a concept album about you know divorce, about love and loss from the man's side and the woman's side. Well, well, here's a concept album about a guy murdering his wife and getting away with it, ultimately. It was the time of the preacher In the year of one. Now the lesson is over And the killing's begun Yeah, that's The Red-Headed Stranger. And this is a very strange album for Willie Nelson to have as his true crossover breakout hit. But of course, if we want to explain why this is the one that finally broke him big, not just in country music, but you know, breaking him out of just country music to like the listener, the American music listener at large. I guess we're going to have to talk a little bit about outlaw country and the origins of that genre as well. Uh, but I guess you know the person that it's 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 most appropriate to turn this over to to start is Jesse. What do you have to say about outlaw country, redheaded stranger, and the beginning of the second chapter of Willie Nelson's career? So let's back up slightly because. Outlaw Country, I think the phrase had been tossed around a little bit as people were trying to describe this new music coming out of Austin and also, frankly, coming out of kind of the counterculture of Nashville um, for a while. But there were other names being kicked around. One that was used a lot um, for, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, one that was used to the extent that people talked about it a lot was, and this is going to sound very strange, progressive country and western. (laughs) Um, which makes you think of like Rick, country. I love it. You imagine like a Rick Wakeman in a cowboy hat. Or, <laughs> but you, you actually, it's it, funny. You say you say that, but you could because yes, is Steve Howe is a huge country and western oh, fan. The clap, and there, yeah, there, yeah, exactly. There were lots of bizarre C and W licks and yes songs. So, so that's broad country. But that's not what they meant. They they meant uh, this sort of post Dylan, post Christopherson literate uh, storytelling moment uh, in in country uh, songwriting and performing. Um, And the phrase, for obvious reasons, didn't really catch on outside of, like, the industry and then not very long there. I can actually remember once being in the the, uh, car um, with my kid, as a kid, 
and my dad hearing on the radio someone say progressive country and him just cracking up <laughs> at the very thought um, of, this, of this, this existing. Yeah, I, I got to say, this sounds like the Latinx of uh, country branding. Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, but what's the, another phrase, and I, and I should say, my dad, you know, country music listener who grew up in Nashville, so this was not snobbery. This was like, uh, 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 that's, that's, that's not the right phrase to use. But another phrase, that was there's a book by Jan Reed that came out in, I think, 74, and then he did a... Um, second edition in the early 21st century called The Improbable Rise of Redneck Rock. And that wasn't just about the uh, sort of proto-outlaw scene. It was about the general kind of Austin music scene. But he was, I think, deliberately trying to say, what is the exact opposite of saying progressive country? And he said, well, I'll go with redneck rock. So, And you had these two different sides of it. And you had some people like David Allen Coe, who, depending on mood, could be one or oh, the other. I was about to yeah. say, yeah, right. Yeah. So, but this is... Um, so in this period, you suddenly saw a surge of these evocative stories about complicated characters, and they didn't always follow traditional story structure, and sometimes they were a little surrealistic, and sometimes they were super realistic, sometimes they were both. And at their worst, they courted incoherence, but at their best, they brought an art form into places that had rarely or never been before. Last night I came home and I knocked on my door. And I called to my love as I oft had before And I knocked and I knocked but no answer there came No kisses to greet me, no voice called my name And I couldn't believe it was true, oh Lord I couldn't believe it was true And my eyes filled with tears And I must have aged ten years And I couldn't believe it was true And that sounds like I'm describing this new set of country song singer-songwriters like uh, David Allen Coe in the early years and Towns Van Zandt and Terry Allen and Guy Clark. But it also describes the so-called New Hollywood that was emerging at the same time, late 60s, early 70s. Um, sure and I think the mm. connection between quote-unquote progressive country and quote-unquote New Hollywood it isn't just the fact that Chris Christopherson moved to California and became a movie star and neglected the art form that he was better at. It's this sort of deeper thematic con uh, connection between what was happening in this corner of the music world and in that corner of the movie world. And Redheaded Stranger, to me, is I, it sort of embodies that, uh, that intersection. Um, a lot of the actors and directors who defined the new Hollywood had gotten their start working in exploitation pictures in an earlier part of the 60s, you know, Jack Nicholson and Martin Scorsese and so on. Actually, Scorsese a little bit later, but he did exploitation stuff for Roger Corman, too. And that on the edges of exploitation cinema, um, both in that um, proto-New Hollywood period and then in the New Hollywood itself, you had a group of movies that Jonathan Rosenbaum has called the Acid Western, and that's what Red-Headed Stranger is. It's a Western that's also an elusive, free associative story that comes unstuck in time. 
Uh, much later, someone made an actual redheaded stranger movie, and it isn't like that at all. It should have been scripted by Rudy Wurlitzer. It should have been directed by someone like Monty Hellman or Sam Peckinpah. And actually, I think Peckinpah might have been attached to it for a while, but he's not the one who ended up making it. But I got to tell you, Jesse, when you were describing yeah. acid westerns for a second there, I was frightened that you might mention El Topo because man, I was just <laughs> like, this is this is much better than that piece of yeah, crap. That, yeah, there are. Yeah, that would include movies like El Topo, but it would also include movies like The Hired Hand. And, right, you know, much right. better than, yeah. Much and, better. And, and actually, the shooting, if like you want to go back to the exploitation days, which is right. this like, bizarre Monty Hellman um, Western inspired by the JFK assassination, <laughs> uh, where nothing makes sense, but it's all very evocative and, and manages to hang together. And that's a great, uh, great way of describing yeah. Redheaded Stranger, where yeah. the narrative album doesn't quite make sense or hang together. It just sort of make, make, makes a mood-like sense or an emotional sense, yeah. right? Yeah, it, it's an acid Western concept album. It sounds as stark and as stripped down as those early Willie Nelson demos. Um, isn't, that, that, isn't that the line know? where they, we submitted it to Columbia and they said, we, yeah. we, 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 this, is, this is the demo, right? And he's like, no, yeah, I mean, Billy album. Sherrill, legendary um, producer, a, a great producer. Who has appeared on this show previously on Political Beats with his uh, production of Elvis Costello's <laughs> yes. Almost Blue. <laughs> Which is a very different, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> have, you, have you seen that documentary about the oh, making yeah. Of Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I mean, the South Bank show, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so he is, I mean, I, I, a brilliant, I think, producer of, of on sort of the pop uh, side of country, um, very influenced by soul music, um, someone I have enormous respect for, and he just did not know what to make of this when it came to him. Um, and I, I mean, I think he said nice things about Willie Nelson since then, but he was kind of like, what is this, the demo, as, as you were saying. The bright lights of Denver are shining like diamonds. Like 10,000 jewels in the sky And it's nobody's business Where you're going or where you come from And you're judged by the look in your eye She saw him that evening In a tavern in town In a quiet little out-of-the-way place and they smiled at each other as he walked through the door. And they danced with their smiles on their faces. And they danced with a smile on their face. You know, this is, it didn't grab me the first time I heard it. Um, grab me right away the way that, you know, hearing Shotgun Willie for the first time did. It took a little while for Redheaded Stranger to grow on me. You have to put it on at the right moment in the evening and give it your attention. But once you've done that, I think you'll find it can be pretty rewarding. Um, I mean, this again, it's an acid Western concept album that, you know, it's just a half hour long. Um, and it doesn't so much tell a story as does sort of move through the um, what's going on in inside the head of the, uh, the of the title character, the man who murders his wife. And I, when he breaks into these like old country songs that Willie Nelson didn't even write, like Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain mm -hmm. and, and so on. I mean, that's um that's the free association. You can imagine how that would kind of work as as in one of these films and everyone would say, What the hell is going on? This is like a weird art film. But as at a record, it was uh a smash hit. And and it was a smash hit 
because it works in the way that records work because records are unlike film they work as snapshots as images they're scenes from certain moments in a character's life for example which is how you can get away with slotting a song like blue eyes crying in the rain into the narrative for those unfamiliar with this album uh, you know, the first half is actually kind of a very long kind of narrative structure. It's all woven together with like little interstitial, like, you know, where the narrator, Willie singing just him and his acoustic guitar and the loneliest sounding harmonica on the planet. You know, <laughs> he, you know he, he's singing the time of the preacher theme. And then all of a sudden it goes into the song, which, you know, in the structure of the narrative is like a song that the killer hears on the radio. And then it's like feels nostalgic about that's purportedly supposed to be what the theme is. But really, Willie Nelson just wanted to cover Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain because it sounds good and the mood fits with the mood of the album. Love is like a dying ember, and only memories remain. Ages I'll remember Blue eyes crying in the rain Sort of the way Quadrophenia explained a lot of its songs with its booklet where it had just photographs of each of the songs gave you the image, the scene in the life of the character, and then it made more sense than actually trying to string it together with words. Um, you know, the song, the album's conceit, I just also have to point out, it came from the, the tale of the red-headed stranger, which is the song he covers. It's the one that he does right after Blue Eyes. Um, great song. Uh, apparently he loved to sing it to his daughter as she fell asleep. Um, I, I marvel at this, and I just want to know how old her daughter was while he was doing that, because I... Can yeah. I confess, um, when my uh, older daughter was uh, oh, no. the exact um, age, but like sleeping in the crib still, <laughs> I would I would sing her sing sing me back home by Merle Haggard, which is yes, about a man about a being marched <laughs> a man being marched to uh, the execution <laughs> chamber. <laughs> and, and all I can say in my defense is, you know, there are not many songs that good where I actually can hit most of the notes. <laughs> Um, and it is about singing a lullaby. So okay, hey. so I've okay, Jesse. My confession is that ever since I learned this anecdote, doing the research for the show, I've started singing perverse songs to my son when he goes to bed. So I've started singing like really depressing Richard Thompson tunes and like airport convention and things like that, or like meet on the ledge and you know, like, things like that. And he, you know, he digs them because the melody is good. That's <laughs> just what you do. But yeah, I just think it's hilarious that Willie would sing this song to his daughter. Redheaded stranger had eyes like thunder and his lips, they were sad and tight. His little lost love lay asleep on the hillside and his heart was heavy as night don't cross him don't boss him he's wild in his sorrow he's riding hiding his pain don't fight him don't spite him just wait till tomorrow maybe he'll ride on again Yellow-haired lady leaned out of her window and watched as he passed her way. Uh, and of course, the tale is you know just this dark murder ballad, and it it 
it doesn't hit modern sensibilities the same way I think as it might have worked as 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 Jesse pointed out in the era of say rebel cinema, uh, you know, New Hollywood, um, because like this is basically a redemption story for a guy who's just jealous that his wife cheated on him, uh, murders him, both tries to forgive him. There's the moment where you think he's going to forgive him, but then Willie comes in with the time of the preacher theme. He says, "Yeah, but you know what? At the end of the day." The, the preachings began ended and now the killing's begun. <laughs> so he does kill him after all, but then he gets redemption for his sins and he gets the love of another woman after uh, apparently randomly murdering somebody for touching his horse. Boy, you know, me recounting the plot of Redheaded Stranger sounds about as coherent as me trying to recount the plot of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis. <laughs> I don't know if you, you know, any, all of the fans remember my attempt to try to make heads or tails out of that. It's the same thing. It has a sense. It doesn't have a narrative flow. Think of it more like Tommy. Don't think of it as an actual opera. Scott? this I mentioned this in our conversations leading up, and Jesse admitted there and mentioned here as well that the first times he heard Redheaded Stranger didn't grab him the way other albums did. And for me, coming to a lot of this um, for the first time, Redheaded Stranger is the album that I think most people associate with Willie Nelson. I was simply expecting something very different, and I like a whole lot of other Willie Nelson better than Redheaded uh, Stranger is what it comes down to. Is it just too spare for you? It doesn't doesn't get enough pep-up? Is that the idea? Don't mind the spareness. Here's, Here's the thought that occurred to me, and I actually think I might be right after hearing you guys discuss this, how the, the, the album sets this mood and sort of uh, sort of puts you in a certain place what i was thinking about when i was listening to redheaded stranger and hearing some of the little you know song fragments and 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 having some some songs return in different forms throughout the album i'm thinking of the sting which came out i think the year before this album two years years. yeah Yeah. 1973 and the film i haven't seen since i was a child so good so good uh, but the way that that soundtrack to The Sting includes these interludes and transitions and has, you know, the, the jazz ragtime feel to it. And The Sting soundtrack sets that mood for what happens on the screen so perfectly. Redheaded Stranger, to me, plays uh, like a movie soundtrack to a film that had not yet been made. It would be made some some years later. And it would once it was made, it would be far more disappointing than you'd have thought. <laughs> yeah, right. considering all the p- possibilities included. Right. And so that that's where it sort of hangs with me. It's 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 I I I, I don't mind the spareness at all. Uh, I don't mind the minimalist uh, production. Um, I, I just think that it's more of a triumph of planning and execution than it is a triumph of the of the actual songs included on Redheaded Stranger. Now, I'm probably wrong, because it was number one country. It was top 30 on the pop charts, as you guys both mentioned. It was uh, the album that sort of broken through to a much wider audience. There's 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 good stuff here. Hands on the Wheel is, is one that I like a lot. It's got this wonderful acoustic picking solo. Use of the harmonica, which, of course, would will, will continue to be a theme throughout his work in future years. I'm just not sure, as I said, it's not more of a triumph of of planning and production and execution than it is the individual songs themselves. And in the shade of an oak Down by the river Set an old man on a ball Setting sails, spinning tails Fishing for whales 
with a lady they both enjoy. Well, it's the same down to it's the man and the moon. It's the way that I feel about you. And with no place to hide. Let's just just briefly. Yeah, we should give credit to Mickey Raphael, who plays harmonica on this album. And oh yes, I've got a thousand other Willie Nelson albums. Yes. It is such. Oh yeah, a key, he's going to come a up key a lot part. In my notes. <laughs> yeah, he is a key part of the Willie Nelson sound. And I just wanted to make sure his name was mentioned at some point in this ex- two-part extravaganza. <laughs> uh, not only is his harmonica going to become actually, I was. As I said, I haven't written my notes. It's it's my favorite part of Willie Nelson's entire sound is his harmonica. He's all over this album. He's going to be all over all of the next ones. Um, but I also wanted to actually follow up on Scott's point. I said, this is the album. It is worth pointing this out because I think it's very important for, I guess, at least one of the arguments that I'm going to make for the show going forward. He writes exactly one song for the record. Right. One song. It's time of the preacher, and that's a great song, by the way. And he, you know, that's why it comes back like three or four times, right? You know, it was the time of the preacher, and he sings it in that great plaintive voice, and it is immortal. But it opens the album, and I think it kill, closes the first side, and everything else is either like you know, like a brief little snippet, or it's an instrumental, or it's a cover of someone else's songs, and. You know, Willie Nelson, of course, up until this point had been primarily famous, not as an interpreter, but rather as a songwriter, as the guy who had just like written some of the most wonderful songs and sort of almost had an endless fount of great tunes, you know, arrows in his quiver. And this on his biggest breakout album yet, he has not written a single original tune other than, you know, I guess you could call Time of the Preacher the title track, even though Redheaded Stranger is the title track. Time of the Preacher is the glue that holds this record conceptually together. It was the time of the preacher When the story began Of the choice of a lady Love of a man I loved her so dearly He went out of his mind When she left him for someone She left behind And he cried like a baby Scream like a panther in the middle of the night And he saddled his pony And he went for a ride There's one last thing I'd like to say. It's like I, I can't let the, the album pass without talking about the centerpiece of the second side, which is Can I Sleep in Your Arms? Um, it's this very long, it's the longest song on the record. It's like, like five and a half minutes long or something like that. It's this beautiful ballad. And in the context of the record, it's like him trying to find, you know, love and redemption with a woman after all the, you know, the troubles and tribulations he's been through, you know, that, that, you know, having to murder that poor woman who touched his horse. How dare that woman touch his horse. Um, but, uh, 
it's a beautiful song and it's a beautiful performance. And again, it's one of those things that it's curious that it exists in one context if you take the narrative of the album seriously, but of course stands so far apart and outside of it and just is its own perfect little piece of music on its own. Can I sleep in your arms tonight, lady? It's so cold Lying here All alone And I have No hope To hold on you And I assure you I'll do say on that um the uh the red-headed stranger the the actual title track um mm-hmm. he he knew that song back from when he was a dj in the 1950s right. and in some ways what you're describing is like what a dj does i mean a really good freeform dj when they're planning right. a set you know sure. they're taking other people's work i mean they're not interpreting them obviously well you know that your average dj cannot sing blue eyes crying they're recontextualizing in the rain as well it. but they're recontextualizing it and and sometimes even you know, forming a story or at least a kind of um, evocative series of moods. Um, right. So in some ways that, I mean, this isn't just a throwback to the demos. It's a throwback to before he was a recording artist at all. And I think actually one of the things that I'll argue about Willie Nelson's greatness going forward, because this, by the way, I talked about, well, he's not writing a lot of songs these days. You might think this is going to be a really downer show. It's the opposite. It's just so many hits, hits after hits, is that he actually finds a way to do that recontextualization within the form of one song. Because this is where he becomes a truly great interpreter. All right. A guy who sings other people's music, but actually really gives a lot of thought. You know, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong, but he's making an intelligent play about how he wants to present it in a different way and in a new way and in an interesting way. I mean, if he's on his game, at least. And so that takes us to this follow-up album. I, I always wondered about what's the weird thing about Willie Nelson's career because he doesn't have the commercial trajectory that you expect of a rock career. Like, you know, like you have a big hit, and then you're like, you can here's your big commercial push for your next album. Well, Willie next al- Willie's next album is The Sound in Your Mind. And it feels a little bit anticlimactic after Redheaded Stranger. I know I've done weird things. I told people I heard things. When silence was all out of bounds. Been days when it pleased me to be on my knees. Following ants as they crawl across the ground. Been insane on a train. But I'm still me again And the place where I hold you is true So I know I'm alright Cause it'd have to be crazy To fall out of love with you You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not a concept album, right? Um, you know, and it just has a couple of nice covers has a couple of new tunes 
has a couple of old tunes, and it ends with a medley of his greatest hits. <laughs> um, but I actually really like that medley of his greatest hits, and that also brings us to another question. Maybe, Scott, you want to go first. What do we think about you know, what is going to be the increasingly uh, common phenomenon of Willie just going back to the well and re-recording his old songs? So good question, because I, I wrestled with this uh, through listening to all these albums and again as you mentioned it'll be at least as frequent if not more frequent moving forward because he ceases writing uh new music on the whole for a whole lot of years here and even when he picks it back up again it's it's few and far between what you have is him revisiting all these old songs and doing things differently and at first my initial reaction is sort of to be to sort of push away from it and say you know what why why do you why are you repeating yourself why why do you keep going back to the well with these songs that in some cases have already been done three four times in the span of his career through both 60s and and, and first half of the 70s and the more i listen though the more i appreciate what he's doing which is when you consider the fact he's he's essentially stopped writing new songs for large swaths of time i can i can feel him i can hear him saying look these are my these are my songs these are the best songs i can write they have been covered by other artists they have been very successful all i want to do is play with them i want to change things i want to present them again i want to you know in the same way that an artist, and Jeff will be surprised because I'm going to make reference to live music here, in the same way that, that a band will re, reinterpret, redo, rearrange their old hits when they go out and, on different tours and do it slightly differently this time or set it to a different beat this time or do it acoustic this time. He's doing that and putting it down on, on vinyl. He's doing this for his albums and simply saying, these are, these are my best songs. These are the songs I've written. These are the songs that will stand the test of time. I just want to do them. I want to play with them and do them in different forms. And uh, to, to preview a bit of what's coming very soon, guys, he's just treating his songs, his great songs, as if they're a slice of the great American songbook. He's saying, Which is arrogant in some ways, yes, but actually but true. it works. It, it worked because it, it turned out to be right. Yes, he's just saying, that, I've written these songs that are now canon. I've written these songs that will stand the test of time. And just like Gershwin and just like Irving Berlin and just like the greats of the Great American Songbook, it's okay to simply take these songs and play with them into the future. And by God, that's as beautiful a segue as I could have hoped for into my favorite song, All in the Sound of Your Mind, which is, of course, the one that opens it up. It's it's a Tin yeah. Pan Alley song. That lucky old son just rolls around heaven all day. Which is, by the way, the title alone. You just boy, why don't people write titles like that anymore? <laughs> That's just such a wonderful turn of the phrase, you know. Um, and and, and just, everybody, every sort of musician who loves American music eventually covers it. You know, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, yeah. Willie Nelson. You know, at some point you say, you know, this is a song I got to sit down on vinyl. And, and Willie just does it justice, it, a, a harbinger of things to come, to say nothing else. I mean, this is, uh, you can see where he got the impulse, you know, to do Stardust later on, uh, because he just has so much fun covering this song. And, and he gets his band, you know, he's, I think his sister's on piano, you know, he's got his, his, his guys, his family are playing there. And the sound they come up with on this album, on that song, but on the album as a whole, is very relaxed and lived in and it's funny this actually feels like one of the last sort of like 
in the, in the mainline run of Willie Nelson albums. Stardust, I guess, maybe is the is the final one, and then everything gets weird in Willie Nelson's <laughs> discography from that point onward. But this one is, I think, very underrated, and I underrated it myself for a very long time. I think I first heard this back in about you know 15 years ago, and I just sort of dismissed it out of hand. But it's it's grown on me quite a bit. Show me that river, lead me across, take all my troubles away, and like the lucky old son. I'll have nothing to do but roll around heaven all day. And like the lucky old son, I'll have nothing to do but roll around heaven all day. Let me jump in it's, before Jesse uh, will sort of finish us off. This is—I don't love a sound in your mind, but there are some important things happening here. There are there are hints of things that we're going to see. Uh, there are hints, of course, of Stardust on that lucky old son you guys talked about. There are hints of the gospel oh. album, which is around the corner. On Amazing there's a hint Race. of the Lefty album also. Yes, <laughs> also, uh, if you've. There's hints of of his lack of writing. There's really only one new song on here. I think the title track is the only you know new song he's written. And of course, the the hints of him revisiting all his old material and that medley at the end, which works great. It's uh, funny how time slips away and crazy in nightlife. There's a great bluesy guitar breakdown, but that right there, that's nine minutes of the thirty five minutes of the album is that medley at the end of the album. And one other thing I'll say is, you guys just got done praising the harmonica use of his songs, and it's almost universally true. This is this is the only the only album where I have a note that says I I think that harmonica is a bit too sharp in the production oh. on the sound in your mind huh. it it really i mean i'm a harmonica fan and i think it's used to great effect on future albums here it's just a little too loud and too sharp, too sharp and sort of pre- uh, presages some of the 80s production loudness that will seep into some of his work on um, uh but on the other hand as jeff said it's a little underrated um and, and again we see i think some 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 roads he's going to travel here in the next few years it's an album that I always remember that I like it and I can never remember what's on it. Right. You know, I mean, it's not one of those yeah. things. You say Shotgun Willie or Phases and Stages or Yesterday's Wine. And and you can call out songs, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. This one, I mean, I, other than the title track, you know, obviously I'll say is in there. I'll have to think a bit. Um, I, I, let me say something about that um, medley. It's the kind of thing that once a, especially a country uh, artist has a certain number of hits and everybody wants to hear all of them, mm-hmm. you start doing medleys just to fit <laughs> them into the concert. Like I saw Charlie Pride play at a, at a uh, state or county fair, I don't remember which, um, in the late 90s. And there, there was like a moment where it was like, you know, 15 to 20 seconds of, of each of his hit that he was not going to play in full. And oh, yeah. you just Motown, knew it was obligatory. I mean, it, it's this an is an R&B like Motown that. staple as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. like the Stevie Wonder playing a year. Yeah, exactly. Here's 30 seconds of the hooks of every one of my 60s hits. Right. But, but this yeah. is not that. This is a medley of three songs that he had been playing live with this band for several years. If you get a whole of... And it's of the full the, songs uh, mostly, too. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. There's like the um, the Atlantic Sessions, whatever, the complete Atlantic Sessions, the one that's in addition to Shotgun Willie and um, phases and stages and various outtakes, they have a live disc 
And, you know, that's this is on there, them doing it live and, uh, you know, before an audience who wants to hear all the song. But they're spreading out with it. They're having fun. They're uh, this is this is stuff they've been playing together in this way. Those specific three songs for a long time. And part of me thinks, you know, Willie Nelson probably just wanted to have a recording of that on on record. So this is yeah. what we've been doing with these songs. I'm crazy. Crazy for loving you. And when the evening sun goes down, you're gonna find me hanging around the nightlife ain't no good life. But it's my life. The uh, Birds did it as long ago as 68. You know, they just recorded their live medley of like, you know, uh, Baby, What You Want Me To Do and My Back Pages. And they'd already done My Back Pages on a previous album. But they just said, you know what? We play this in concert and it goes over well. So that's how they ended Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde. So, like, it's not and, – and, of course, that was during their country phase, I might point out. So they probably picked it up from the country style. Um, it's not an uncommon thing. By the way, I, I just love how you mentioned Atlantic because, uh, you know, uh, you know, Atlantic seemed to, you know, ha- have a, a lot more Willie in the vaults than they let on. You, you mentioned that complete Atlantic set, but you didn't mention – the album that we're about to talk about next which should have been on that set but i guess they didn't have the rights anymore they didn't have the right they probably had to negotiate (laughs) them away to get away with releasing them at the time it seems like everybody's holding on to a little extra willy like rca is like you know has god only knows how much stuff in the vaults atlantic uh sitting on the gold mine of willy's big commercial revival and then redheaded stranger drops i think they did they put this out a month after uh, willy's actual follow-up and it's the troublemaker and I got to tell you, I, I really do like the sound of your mind. But the Troublemaker is such a better album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, this is like, yeah, this is why you're like, why didn't we have like seven Atlantic era Willie Nelson albums? When the Let's be clear for for everybody uh, listening. This he recorded during his time in Atlantic. They put it in the vaults to release later because it's a gospel album. 
I mean, they figure we don't want to start with that. Um, it does not feel gospel-y. To and, me, even no, though it's no. of course not. But you know, it's 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 religious album, right? Yeah. And yes. then after he moves to Columbia, they allow him to take it with him. So it's not actually released by Atlantic. It's released by Columbia. And it is a an album that sounds very much of. I think it was recorded at the same sessions as Shotgun Willie, right? Yeah, so seventy three. Yeah, it is yeah. them. It's that band, which is a great band and a great mood and Doug Som, Sammy and, Smith, Larry Gatlin. I'm just looking at this. Uh, it's just it, it perfect people in a perfect time and place, and they're playing like rebel gospel. Outlaw gospel. You want this album, people. Like you want the troublemaker, which is of course exactly what you expect. It's about that anti-war protester who just can't stop pissing off the authorities so much and they finally put him to death and they nail him to a cross and his name was that, Jesus. That's that that song, I mean it sounds like if you describe it like that, it sounds like the a little too eager Sunday oh, school teacher. Right. Let me tell you about a man who had some crazy ideas, but he had, he sells it. He, he, uh, he sells if, it. <laughs> I love genuinely it. works. He'd rather wear his sandals and his flowers while others wage the war that must be won. They arrested him last week and found him guilty. Sentenced him to die, but that's no great loss. Friday they will take him to a place called Calvary and hang that troublemaker to a cross. comes right after one of the most profoundly moving and ancient American gospel songs of all time. And it might be one of my most favorite cover versions of that song as well. I think I first heard Will the Circle Be Unbroken when it was done by the Carter family. Um, I, I think it was them. Uh, I've heard a bunch of covers at this point. But Willie's version of that, just it, it almost feels like very informal. Like They're all just jamming on a tune. They all know. Everyone knows this. Um, and uh, God, I love it. And then to follow that up with the Troublemaker, uh, this is a great album that again, you know, just people don't know about anymore. Man, I mean, I, I wish we had more of these. Will the circle be unbroken by and by or by and by? And a better It's fan- it sounds fantastic as much as I sort of quibbled with the sound of the sound in your mind. This is dating back a couple of years and has that wonderful sound. As, as uh, Jesse mentioned, Doug Sam is here playing fiddle and, uh, and, and, and adding harmonies. 
Uncloudy Day is a wonderful track with that honky-tonk piano and pedal steel. Uh, man, outlaw gospel. I like that phrase. <laughs> uh, it is. And then, uh, and then Sweet By and By, uh, right near, it's, it's this um, piano-based song, slight acoustic picking. It's just a very, very pretty song. They were capable of doing that sort of work, too, in the very hot band they had together for these, uh, for these sessions. His third number one country album in a row. So he is moving units here for his record label and uh, I guess making good on the the promise that he has artistic freedom. Uh, he's actually selling albums now. He's actually tasting success. Oh, they tell me I'm home where my friends have gone. And they tell me I'm that land far away where the dream life in eternal blue. RCA is deciding to cash in as well. They put out that The Outlaws album, which I don't know if that counts as in that row of number one albums. Um, well, it, it, the weird it, thing about it is there's, I was actually thinking to myself, well, how do we discuss this album? Because there's nothing new on it. Everything on it, I think we already discussed on episode one for the most well, part. Well, Waylon Jennings dubbed in vocals for a fake duet, I think. Got so, it. I, yeah. Right, exactly. See, I was looking through it again, like, you know, in the run-up to this one. I was like, well, is there anything really to cover here? Just the phenomenon of it, which is actually important enough to discuss because this album blew up in the country charts. This was its own regional sub-phenomenon. Jesse, I interrupted you, but you can explain it as well as anyone. Oh, I mean, this is basically RCA. Um, I mean, Red-Headed Stranger is a smash hit. People start talking about outlaw country and this new scene. And it's especially built. I mean, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings are kind of the big names in it. But a big impetus behind that album getting out was Waylon Jennings kind of wanting to. He's always he's like kind of I don't want to make it sound like say he's riding on Willie Nelson's coattails because he's an enormously talented uh, and creative artist, you know, who deserves all the success he's got. In fact, he and as we said last time, negotiated his creative freedom before Willie Nelson did. But it's interesting that here we have this album. They've got four people on it. Um, one of them is Willie Nelson with some old RCA stuff being re-released one of them with his head up there larger than the others is waylon jennings another one is waylon jennings wife another one is <laughs> Waylon jennings crony um whose name i always forget if it's not in front of me tommy yeah. whatever you know and um so i mean this is kind of like kind of like hey guys check out waylon too is kind of the uh undercurrent of it but what's really interesting about this album is you know when you say outlaw country and this is i mean i guess we should i talked about sort of proto outlaw before but Outlaw Country itself, in the late 70s, there's a couple different ways to think about it. One narrative is that this is the country music version or counterpart to punk. Um, this is the rebel uh, uh, counter-establishment. They move out to Austin and even the hill country. Um, they're away from Nashville. They're doing stuff that breaks the rules. And there's a lot of truth to that. But it's the, the Outlaws album, the smash um 
uh, thing that put made outlaw country the dominant term for this movement and this style of music kind of puts the lie to it because it's all from Nashville. It's not just that <laughs> Willie Nelson stuff is from his Nashville RCA days. Waylon Jennings is still based in Nashville. You know, David Allen Coe is based in Nashville. All these, and at this point, there is like a Nashville um, counterculture, you know, sort of built around like the West End, and there's this kind of bohemian neighborhood, or as bohemian as you can get in Nashville in that era. Um, I, I uh, sent a passage from the book to my um, my dad, who, as I said, grew up in uh, Nashville. There's this book um, called Outlaw, um, uh, Wayland, Willie, Chris, and the Renegades of Nashville. It was written by Michael Streisguth, whose name I might have just mispronounced. And he has this sort of description of, of the Nashville's West End. And I knew my dad kind of grew up like going over to, um, you know, the black side of town and seeing people like James Brown and Aretha Franklin play. And I thought, well, if, if he would have gotten out and, uh, and uh, to another part of town to see music, you know, he would see this. Um, he's like, oh, this is all new to me. I, this is not <laughs> happening yet while I was uh, growing up there. So this is sort of a later development. But by the time this happens, there really is um, a country music counterculture in Nashville as well as Austin. And if you look at where people are based who are making um, outlaw country, as much of it or, or almost as much of it, maybe even more of it is coming from Nashville as was coming from Austin. A long time forgotten Dreams that just fell by the way The good life he promised Ain't what she's living today Really? But she never complains Of the bad times Or the bad things he's done Lord. She just talks about the good times they've had and all the good times to come. She's a good-hearted woman in love with a good time and man. She loves him in spite of his ways she don't understand. Through teardrops and um, and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings are at the center of it. There's a reason why Dave and Alan Coe recorded a song called Willie Waylon and Me, and Willie Nelson did not re record a song called Me, Waylon Jennings, and David Allen Coe. You know, I mean, they're, <laughs> they, they are the stars of it. And but um, it's not, and a large part of it is because of that album. But then again, you know, there are two other people in that album, and they don't become synonymous with country music. Uh, even though Jesse Coulter, you know, deserves. Uh, more attention than she he, gets. Yeah, he's not a yeah. nobody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was, uh, I mean, she was not just Waylon Jennings' uh, uh, wife. She was like a very talented singer, you know. But so, yeah, so this is, um, this whole phenomenon is happening. The thing about Outlaw Country, though, is that whether it was coming from Austin or Nashville or just somebody listening to them and trying to copy it is, this was the moment that um, it became obvious to the mainstream that, the uh, the counterculture and the redneck culture were mixing in strange ways. I mean, David Allen Coe sang that song "Long-Haired Redneck." That's about this kind of um, internal um, conflict of these sides of his identity. But there was like people. Um, it, uh, 
Louis Grizzard, who's I don't know if people remember that name anymore. He was I uh, do. Yeah. An old humorist. From old the, humorist. Yeah. He, uh, you see, yeah, this he is the wrote, books that my dad had at home and that's how I know them. Yeah. Yeah, he had uh, he wrote something about how he um he couldn't uh, accept people wearing earrings until he saw Willie Nelson doing it, you know? <laughs> um, and there's a there's a passage in um near the beginning of the improbable rise of Redneck Rock, which um oh I meant to have it in front of me. And oh here we go. There's this person um lady from Waxahachie drove three hours to see a Willie Nelson show. And this is a, a couple of years before Redheaded Stranger. So you can see it starting to form, but it's not yet the mass phenomenon. She says, I just love Willie Nelson and I'll drive anywhere to see him. But, you know, he's sure been doing some changing lately. <laughs> she, looked, she looked around. I have never seen so many hippies in all my life. But this is the author now speaking. She abandoned her date to dance a good part of the night away with one of them, a brawny 30-year-old named Sunshine, who used to ride Bronx and play football for Texas Tech before he went underwent some changes of his own. So That's if you're great. interested in like the the amazing and weird um, cultural changes of America in the 1970s. Willie Nelson is pretty close to the center of that. <laughs> um, and uh, some of these records are the soundtrack to it. And the fact that he's, and, you know, he's uh, looking forward and also looking backward at the same time, mixing the traditional and the psychedelic. Piano rolled blues, danced holes in my shoes. There weren't another other way to be. For lovable losers, no account boozers, and honky-tonk heroes like me. Hey, hey. better example of that than him doing a tribute album to a, a classic country artist of the 50s which is the, the next thing he does is to lefty from willie it's a tribute to lefty frizzell now i think one point i want to make about this era is that you know it's something that only occurred to me once i was doing the discographical review you know looking at the notes on these albums it's like uh, after um you know sound of my mind he basically doesn't record anything at all for three years, two, three years. And I don't know why that's the case. I haven't he, read any He makes Willie up Nelson. for it. <laughs> well, he does, but I was wondering, I mean, is it in his biography? Is something going on during this period in the mid to late 70s that keeps him out of the studio? Uh, because I've noticed, you know, this comes out in 1977, but it was recorded back in 75. Right. Then there's a Greatest Hits album. The Troublemaker was a vault album. And then Waylon and Willie comes out, and that's kind of a half-and-half half collaboration. He doesn't even have to really show up for that. Uh, Stardust is the first time he really is back there with his own band doing his own thing. That's 1978, halfway through. Does anybody know what happened there to keep him off the road or out of it? Uh, and if not, then I guess we should just go on to talking about this vault release, which is a tribute to Lefty Rosello, who I think at the time it was recorded had just passed away. 
I, I mean, I, I don't know why he wasn't uh, recording. He was certainly on um, recording doing like a lot block. of live I mean, shows. From beyond the veil of ignorance, I'm just saying it has to be writer's block, right? You know, that, that you know he finally had this big commercial breakthrough, but he's like thinking to himself, I'm not writing new songs. I don't know. I have no idea, and I'd love to know if someone else knew better than I did. It's a great question. I, I'm putting it out here for the audience. We're yeah. going to have like a bunch of like you know people who are going to be well actually, and they're going to tell us in the comments. So the that's, wisdom that, of the crowd will help us out. That's what's great. So what do we think of uh, to Lefty from Willie? Uh, you know the cover album. It's a fine. A tribute you know, there's this stretch here, and we'll talk uh, more where there's all he these tribute tributes, albums, right? right? Where he's he's doing other people's songs all in one album, or or he's collaborating with other people. This is one of the first, and I think it's pretty darn good. Uh, again, I think in large part because it is from a couple of years ago, so it has uh, that that earlier sound that works so well for him. Lefty Frizzell, for people who don't know, uh, I mean, Willie could have gone down the same road. Lefty was a hard-living, honky-tonk, uh, hard-drinking guy, he died of a stroke uh, in 75 at the age of, I think, 47, but really beloved. And as much as we talk, and we'll probably will talk about how uh, Willie got a lot of his vocal phrasing and, and, and sort of inflections from Sinatra, which he did. Lefty Frizzell influenced a ton of country and honky-tonk singers, including very much Willie Nelson, the way he would stretch his syllables and sort of play around with where he'd come on the beat or around the beat. And in many ways, this sort of lazy, soulful delivery that Willie would perfect in his time. And so uh, Lefty was uh, Lefty died in '75, and and he and the band, the family, Willie and the family, got together and did ten songs in one afternoon. Um, you know what? I don't. I wouldn't say there's a vibe, a tonight's the night vibe to it, but in the same way that Neil Young and his collaborators got together and said, you know, let's just play for, uh, let's just play for for the guys who have, who have passed. Um, it is a wake, yeah. This is yeah. this is somewhat of a wake for Lefty. It's a one afternoon, ten song wake for Lefty Frizzell. That I think works really well. I mean, it, it's a, it's a fun album. Lefty had great tunes. Uh, I love you a thousand ways. Has some of the jazzy flourishes that he'd throw in on songs. There's a wonderful piano part on "I Want to Be with You Always." These are really good songs that were just held on to a couple of years by the label, released in '77. Uh, but you know, Willie loves Lefty. Willie loves music, as we'll return to time and time again. He loves these songs, and it definitely comes through. I love you. I'll prove it in days to come I swear it's true Darling, you're the only one I've been so blue And lonesome since you've gone And I love you And I'll prove it a thousand ways be nice and sweet to you and no more will you be blue and I'll prove I love you every day all kinds of ways so I, I can't really be objective about this album because this is one that my mom played incessantly when I was you know what eight nine years old not long after it came out 
Um, I, I will say my one kind of addition to just observing it is that, well, these are all songs Lefty Frizzell did over his career. And this gets back to sort of the traditional and the psychedelic. Some of them um, aren't actually Lefty Frizzell songs. They're songs yeah, that are just associated with, with that. He's, yeah. That right. he's saying. Right. And the last one on it, I mean, Railroad Lady, Lefty Frizzell did sing that like um, shortly before he died. But I mean, it's that's a Jimmy a, Buffett tune. It, it, Jerry Jeff Walker and Jimmy Buffett wrote it. I associate it mostly with Jerry Jeff Walker, um, and it's a uh, it comes from that whole kind of uh, new generation of quote unquote progressive country singers. Now it's a backwards looking song, so you know it's like fractal and forward and backward, you know, within one. But it, it kind of shows, even in this, like his but, tribute to the recently departed, he's um, he's tipping his hat to like his contemporaries as well. Yes, but but give give the point. Give the credit to Willie that you know it's a one one day. We're just going to do an Irish wake here, you know, um, you know, rat, rattle off a bunch of songs in one session. He had the forethought. He's like, listen, I'm not just going to do the old school classics. I want to point out this is also like a new classic that he had made his own as well, and because he cared about that, he was you know a guy who was always living in the present as well as the past. He didn't have any problems sort of like having his feet in all those worlds simultaneously. And so, yeah, ending the album with Railroad Lady actually is a really nice touch. It is. It, it, was, it was saying like, you know, Lefty, you know, was, you know, he died here at age 47, but he was still making new music and making other people's music his as well. She's a railroad lady, just a little bit shady, spending her days on the train. She's a semi-good looker, but the fast rails they took her. Now she's trying, just trying to get home again. South Station in Boston to the stockyards of Austin. From the Florida sunshine to the New Orleans rain. Now that the rail packs have taken the best tracks. She's trying, just trying to get home again. She's a railroad lady, just a little Willie would bit return um, in 1978 with an album that would be, the more I think about it, the more, you know, Willie has taken some left turns during his career. He's not afraid to, to, uh, to uh, experiment. He's not afraid to do the gospel album. He's not afraid to do those Atlantic albums with, that wonderful, the, the, the horns and the soul infused in it. But what he does with Stardust is one of the most intriguing, successful, and yet risky plays that I think we perhaps have covered on the show. Stardust is Willie Nelson taking on these pop standards, the American songbook. Georgia. Georgia No peace I find Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia On my mind Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind On my mind On my mind 
Uh, it's an album that has always sort of lived outside the periphery of my, uh, not my knowledge, but my love. I haven't exactly inhaled Stardust for years on end, but it's always been around. And you hear always hear Willie's versions of these songs. And the behind and how it came to be is just as interesting because Booker T, uh, Jones, Booker T. Jones, was a neighbor of Willie's in Malibu. And he had this idea, Willie had this idea to do Stardust, and not surprisingly, the label was not so enthusiastic about it. <laughs> and so he actually ended up just talking to Booker T. Jones and saying, let's, let's, let's do this. And they record it at Emmylou Harris's house in Los Angeles. These songs are some of the most well-known songs. They are from the Great American Songbook. They are not Willie's songs, but they are done in a way that no one else could have pulled off. And he makes them the indelible versions of these songs in many, many cases. This was a really radical move at the time because Columbia, of course, wants more outlaw. Columbia wants more traditional Willie Nelson music. But Willie goes in, he handpicks these songs, he records them meticulously. This is a fabulous, fabulous sounding album. Loud what it needs to be, delicate what it has to be. And I told Jeff this, and I don't think I'm going to get any pushback on this particular show. Considering the fact it's Willie Nelson, considering the fact it's Booker T, considering the fact it's at Emmylou Harris's house, it contains some of the most well-loved uh, and best-known songs in the Great American Songbook. I am sorry. If you don't like Stardust, I am pretty sure you are an actual communist. This is an album of all things that are wonderful about America and her art and her music, and Willie is a is this a complete grand slam. Tennis in a stream Fallen leaves a sycamore Moonlight in Vermont I see finger waves Ski trails on a mountainside No light in Vermont Telegraph cables Sing down the highway It's the ultimate solution to writer's block. Take some of the greatest songs ever written and do them better than anyone else ever has and suddenly they become your own. <laughs> that's, that's what <laughs> Willie Nelson somehow managed to do. But I want to let Jesse speak first. Alright, well... You know, this is another one where you can talk about looking. I actually, even before I get into that, I said in the um, in the first episode that we did on this that Willie Nelson had not just one but four breakthrough albums. You know, yesterday's wine in terms of like doing the taking creative control and doing a yeah, a, a concept album, album. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Shotgun Willie when he moves to Atlantic, and then of course Redheaded Stranger as the smash hit. But then Stardust, he uh, decides to do something. Um, not completely different because this has always been an, an aspect of his of his music, but something that might not be you're not going to hear it if you're not listening for it. And if you're not a music person. Right. And puts it front and center 
and has uh, something that sells even better than Redheaded Stranger did. Such a commercial sta- a smash that basically for the next several years, record companies say, okay, Willie, whatever you want to do, we trust your judgment. Um, you clearly have your, 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 your finger on the pulse of something. Yeah, yeah. Um, my theory is, my genuine theory is, is like, oh, oh my God, here we are living in like Los Angeles and New York City. And this guy seems to understand what the heart of America wants better than we do. Because remember, Columbia underprinted copies of Stardust yes. when they first were forced to issue it. They gave him the label, the contract, giving him full creative control. But then when they gave him this, they were like, oh, we got to release it. But they underpressed it because they thought, well, this isn't going to sell. Immediately sold out its first run. And they're like, oh, no. They had to like, shovel more, hurriedly shoveled more into the marketplace to meet the demand. They couldn't understand it. And so they're like, okay, Willie, you seem to understand better what, what folks want than we do. <laughs> That's literally how he got his creative freedom. Although she may not be the girl song, men think of as pretty. Please to put on some speed, follow my lead. Oh, how I need someone to watch over me. And and you know, there's um, it's looking backwards. He's doing the Stardust, but it, they're so modern to take on it. The drums on Blue Skies. You know, I mean, that is not no one would have done the drums that way before uh, rock music happened. You know, I mean, having Booker T. Jones as your producer, I mean, one of the great soul producers and musicians, a guy who was on like almost every Stax record, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for, you know, it's uh, it it really again. And there's a a quote I saw from him someplace or another where where he said that he knew that he he had struck something when he would play some of the songs. Um, in concert, I guess this was before the, he actually put out the album, and the old timers in the crowd would be glad to hear that song again, and the new timers, I mean, the, the young people would go crazy because they thought they were hearing a great new song. Yeah, yeah. you know, and that's uh, and, well, and that's, talking about making making them his own. I mean, like I remember having a conversation um, just at someone's house a couple of years ago, um, where. Like he was trying to remember who originally did Georgia on my mind, you know, (laughs) it's I mean, and then when people associate with both him and Ray Charles, but of course it's much older than either one of them. Um, And I was like, was that Hokey Carmichael? And we Google it. Yeah, that was him, you know, (laughs) but I mean, he just, um, and this becomes sort of a template. I mean, he would do a lot of other standards albums after this. Um, Couple of them not so good. Mm -hmm. A lot of them very good. One, I will say I like even better than Stardust. Mm. Um, but it becomes um, a uh, just a, a part of what Willie Nelson does, and he is. This is uh, he has four times had the number one um, jazz album on the Billboard charts. That maybe maybe it's unfair to compare Willie Nelson's <laughs> sales to the sales of some guy from like, from like the loft scene or whatever. You know? But nonetheless. <laughs> It is, and the, and two of them are fine. They were in collaboration with Wynton Marsalis, but the other two weren't. Um, and uh, that says something, you know. Willie Nelson um, 
four times managed to have the number one jazz album in America. I, I, the way that Jesse explained Willie's explanation of this album is the way he sold it to the record company. He said, look, all these songs my older fans will love to hear again, and all of my people that I haven't touched yet, haven't reached yet, will think they're new songs. They're listening to new Willie Nelson songs. And he was right. I mean, that's exactly the way it played out. Uh, I'll mention just a couple of things quickly before handing it off to Jeff. There are just moments of beauty on this album. There's the stillness and comfort at the beginning of September song. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that was, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's probably the best song on here. I, I, I clipped it at the beginning of our first episode because it's so beautiful. Yeah, I'll do it again. You know, the spot on guitar work in Someone to Watch Over Me, which I think is the last song on this album. There's a moment halfway through Unchained Melody where it's just Willie and I think an electric piano on the bridge. It's pure beauty. And I will hand this to Jeff by mentioning Blue Skies again, uh, the Irving Berlin tune, which I I know from our pre-show conversations, both he and I agree. You, you can't, it's just, it, it is impossible to arrange a song like this, arrange a, a classic song, an American songbook uh, uh, classic like Blue Skies. You cannot, you can't do it any better than Willie did on Stardust. The way that Booker T's organ just hovers in the background, setting the mood. It's just, it's a perfect arrangement. Blue Skies is the best track on the album. Blue skies from now on. I mean, blue skies, 
it, Irving Berlin is a songwriter I'm very conflicted about. I find most of his ditties to be a cacophonous noise of Tin Pan Alley clatter. I don't like it. All right, it's just like the it's 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 the the part of that age that has aged the worst for me. And so for him to take an Irving Berlin song, he takes my least favorite songwriter from that era, and he makes it just the most beautiful, effortless, jazzy, light thing. He sounds like a bluebird hovering in those blue skies, smiling at me. All right, the lightness of the arrangement is what is so remarkable. He plays that little acoustic jazz solo, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a little Django, a little tribute solo there in the middle of it on, on his guitar. And it's just such a, an effortless arrangement that you would only get from a truly crack band who just understands the song and understand one another understand what we're trying to do here and as i said like if you're gonna only cover not only other songs old songs but really famous songs to make them your own in the way that willie nelson does here is such a miracle that first half i would say i mean there's exactly one song on the record i think is less than a perfect cover i've never liked on the sunny side of the street that much i don't know feel like it's a bit of a toss-off this is minimal like you know niggling criticism because everything else is profound but the first side that comes from stardust and then it goes into georgia on my mind blue skies in the middle of it and all of me and then it ends i hate unchained melody by the righteous brothers folks <laughs> I, I thought you were going to pick that as the, <laughs> as the song you didn't want in there That's, no, uh, no no i hate it by the righteous brothers I've always found it to be a boring, cheesy piece of Phil Spector gloop. Just like it's a, a 50 sound, a 60, early 60s sound that didn't age well for me, right? Um, and what Willie Delson does with it is just miraculous. It's just, it's, this is just a beautiful reinterpretation of it. And also, it's a statement. He's claiming this Phil Spector, which is 1964, I think, is when Unchained Melody would hit number one. He's claiming that in the same you know, you know, songbook as Moonlight in Vermont and Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael. Okay? And it works with them because it is written in the same way with the same virtues. And he sings them with just such beautiful interpretive genius. So slowly can do so much. Are you still mine? I need your love. I need your love. God speed your love to me. It's about ten years older than the Righteous Brothers version. They were not yeah. right. Spectre did not design. Okay, so it. that's yeah. I didn't realize that. So it is from the fifties then originally. Then, okay, but still, I mean, you know, it doesn't. It, it, it's not Tin Pan Alley twenties thirties, 
Right. And we do, of course, anybody who got the album would have always associated it with the you know, Righteous Brothers. And I just, I'm just amazed that he takes a song that you know I forever associated with eternal bus trips to school with the radio <laughs> on, and oh god, it's like I need your love, oh god. And then Willie singing it, boy, now I understand why why it is an unchained melody. Oh, just in terms of sort of odd uh, reissues, the 1999 edition, which is the one I bought has two bonus tracks, and one of them is Johnny Nash's I Can See Clearly Now, which is so clearly doesn't, I mean, it's actually, I like the version, um, but it, it's, I, I kind of, it, it's, I wish he had found like an album to put it on, but so out of place. With is it the, from uh, the, I've heard it, it's good. Is it from yeah. the sessions? I assume so, you know, I mean, I assume that's why it's there, but it's a, uh, I, I enjoy it, I recommend people go to YouTube or whatever and, and find it to listen to, um, but I, it does not belong on Stardust. Well, that's another thing about it because I actually got when I got it, I got the uh, the 30th anniversary version. This is like you know 10 years after that, um, and uh, it, there was nothing else from the sessions to release, and so they basically just put on a bunch of his 80s covers and you know other sort of you know <laughs> stuff. And it, 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 sorry, it's it's just not nearly as good. Some of those are actually excellent covers, right? How could they not be? Because he's Willie Nelson, but this is. A very weird and self-contained, unique little gem of an album. I guess to circle back around to what Scott said, it does sort of sit outside of everything. We we started the first part of this episode for arguing why does country music sit outside of like rock when we talk about the best albums. Well, Stardust sits outside of all music. It's mm-hmm. just sort of like this is just an album. It's a thing. It's a document. Everybody should have a copy of it. Just like trust me, there'll be a time when you're in the mood for this and you need it. It's great. <laughs> We we transition out of Stardust, which was a a just massive album, and as uh, as Jesse said, exposed him to new audiences and climbed the charts, and allowed Willie the artistic freedom to do whatever the heck he wants to do, and what he wants to do is work with a bunch of friends, do some tributes. And that's what we had these next couple of years. I don't know if you want to take these essentially as we a might group, actually guys. want to go back a little bit in time and talk about Waylon and Willie, which of course was huge because it had "Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys" on it, which is Waylon's big hit. But it also had a bunch of Willie Nelson songs on it. It came out like I think months before Stardust did. Um, does anybody have any strong feelings on that? It's another one of their collaborations. It was again sold more copies than god you know than the bible it's got did. that bizarre uh chris christopherson song the year 2003 minus 25 uh-huh. oh yeah like some sort of protest song and like some like line about um like the arabs buy up the country and sell it to the jews They're like i don't even know what you're trying to say oh, there. And willie sings it with all the commitment too it's so <laughs> yeah. strange oh and then also the, the another christopherson one where does don't cuss the fiddle which is kind of like it's just like a rambunctious brother-in-law or something like that, you know. Like you're like the guy who's a jerk, but you know, like yeah, he's a jerk for a reason, you know. It's, it's a very strange little tune, uh, but nothing's quite. I mean, this isn't this isn't a Waylon Jennings episode, but I had to yeah. point out that that, well, and, that cover of Gold Dust Woman is yeah. just hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and and mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys, which Ed Bruce and Patsy Bruce wrote, and Ed Bruce had actually had a hit with it a few years earlier. Um, and he's one of those kind of progressive era country songwriters who doesn't des- get all the uh, credit he deserves. I mean, it's worthwhile. Like, look, he like put out an album in 1969 that's really good, worth checking out. But that I can remember seeing that uh, title on a jukebox when I was a kid and just cracking up. 
you know? <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, even if the song, as with like Drop Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life, you don't even need a good song with a title that good. But it's, you know, I, I mean, like there's few lines I more enjoy annoying my kids by suddenly breaking into than, you know, Cowboys ain't easy to love. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a fun song. Um, and I listened to and, it and, the other day for the first time in a decade, and I have to admit, Jesse, I laughed through the entire song just because of the same reason you said. Like, all these lines are just country cliches now. It's so funny. It's, it, but, you know, it's it was written with actual wit, but it's possible to take it completely straightforwardly, um, which is one reason why I like Ed Bruce, right? But, you know, that's a fun song, um, and it's obviously the best thing on the album. Uh, They never stay home and they're always alone Even with someone they love Cowboys like smoky old pool rooms and clear mountain mornings Little warm puppies and children and girls of the night Anyways, the other one he does right after this is his big Christopherson tribute album. Scott, yes. do you have any opinions on this one? Are you guys? I mean, I have to say, you know, I mean, Jesse, I know you're going to hate me for eternity for this, but, you know, like, I got to tell you, I liked his weird psychedelic pomped out version of Sunday morning coming down more than this much more Sunday one. <laughs> this is the version of it that I grew up with. Right. I don't know. I mean, this is a really solid um Christopherson tribute. It's got the songs that you absolutely need, like that right. one and The Pilgrim and Me and Bobby McGee. Um, they're solid performances of all of them. I don't know if any of these are the best performance of any of these songs. They're all better than the, or almost all better than the Christopherson performances. <laughs> that's that's not a, you know... A well, that's because you went Hollywood, right? Yeah. yeah. The uh, I, I will say, just as, as an aside, um, the best version to my view of Me and Bobby McGee was Thelma Houston. Um who people know for the disco song, um, Don't Leave Me This Way. Mm -hmm. She's had a wide, varied career, done all kinds of music, and like, was Wait, doing R&B back in the 60s. Houston, that's not, that's not the mother of Whitney, right? There's like some... I don't remember how everyone is related. I'm sorry. But there is a family <laughs> relationship. I, I, I think, you know what? I'm going to well, look up right you now. You don't have to ask you, me. You, yeah. Yeah, you or you can cut it. that. Yeah, but anyway, she does a great version of that song. Um, well, I mean, like, uh, all right, all right, here we go. Despite I, her I, name, she is unrelated to Whitney Houston. Unrelated <laughs> to Whitney Houston. Well, no, we, no, we'll leave this in because we've yeah. informed our listeners now too. Uh, by the way, I, I will say, Jesse, I judge. You know, you, you you like her version, and I'm not unfamiliar with it, but I'm going to check it out after we're done. Um, I always judge uh, me and Bobby McGee's actually not on Janice's version, which uh, is good, but. I think it's overrated. I judge it on the Grateful Dead, <laughs> uh, which made it their song. I mean, they played it basically every night from 1971, basically after she died until the end of their career. And uh, on that level, this is not as good, but it's still pretty good. It's more jammy. It doesn't quite have the melodic focus, I think. Uh, you can make that song truly beautiful and wring the drama out of those lyrics. That's one of the greatest Chris Christopherson lyrics ever. 
um, in so many ways. Um, but uh, I don't know if Willie does as good a job with it as I expected him to, to be honest. Been somewhere near Selena's Lord, I let her slip away. Looking for the home I hope she'll find. And I'd trade all of my tomorrows for a single yesterday. Holding Bob's body next to mine Freedom just another word Nothing left to lose Nothing ain't worth nothing But it's free And see the good was easy, Lord When Bobby sang the blues Buddy, that was good enough for me Good enough for me and Bobby McGee song that I like from the Christofferson album is You Show Me Yours and I'll Show You Mine. That's yeah. my favorite track from the Christofferson album. That's really good. Yeah. 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 Jerry Reed plays on that, apparently. Um, and Booker T. Jones again. So, he pops up here and no, there. No, no, no. Booker just... T. Jones is on, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the internet, on Why Me. Um, but yeah, Jerry Reed does, is on You Show Me, um, You Show Me Yours, and so is uh, Grady Martin. Mm. So. Okay. So oh. unless you guys really want to talk about, you know, Willie Nelson's Christmas album, I would suggest produced by Booker T. That's the only <laughs> thing I'll mention. He, so he does pop up. It's I actually gave it a listen and it was only for the show. I don't know. I don't have any thoughts about it. But this is the point where as I, I joked with Jesse and Scott uh, earlier uh, in our show notes. Like this is the point of Willie Nelson's career. Like if you grew up like I did playing Super Nintendo role playing games like Final Fantasy and stuff like that, this is the point where like you, the role playing game the world opens up. And like, you know, it's no longer like a very linear narrative where you're being held by the hand and you progress from album to album or space to space. Now you can explore 60,000 things at once because that's precisely what Willie Nelson does with his career from the 80s onwards. I think, you know, in his own album career, he has sort of you could call it a drift charitably. And he's just barely doing project this project that touring constantly. It's basically whatever happens to interest him. And he has so many diverse interests as a musician and a music lover mm-hmm. that I think it makes more sense in some ways. You know, other than a couple of big hits, he always scores hits. He will never stop scoring hits, really, until, I guess, the 90s. You know, but you know, throughout the 80s, he's still there and relevant. Um, and, and always you know, like showing up in the headlines for hilarious reasons, too. But I think it makes more sense to cover his albums from this part onwards and sort of in categories because that's the way I think he treats them as well. He'll do like little jazz, you know, country or jazzy excursions. He'll do, you know, a gospel thing. He'll do like, you know, Willie and Friend, you know, mm-hmm. Friend X, that kind of a thing. <laughs> so like, you know, you know, and then of course, then I'll suddenly have a massive hit with Always on My Mind. So I guess that would probably be, you know. Actually, you know what? How do we want to talk about Willie Nelson movie star? Do we want to have any brief thoughts on Willie Nelson in, uh, you know, Honeysuckle Rose or his soundtrack for The Electric Horseman, the failed Robert Redford film, for that matter? <laughs> Those are both movies that were like, you know, it, it was that age of cable TV was new. Um, and they would there be each month there'd be certain movies that get, keep getting repeated over and over. Yes, and I don't know how many times my parents had the Electric Horseman on. Wow, um, I've mean, never even heard of it before. And, and it's like, and wow. it's, I, I saw that so many times, and yet the only moment I can remember now, other than one sort of just shot of Robert Redford in the snow, is Willie Nelson's character saying, 
I'm going to go have mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with a bottle of tequila. <laughs> Which is a fine line. I it's a great say. line. He, he has a real screen presence. Um, he's a better he's actor than Chris Christopherson, you know. Um, and I know um, we were uh, emailing about <laughs> Honeysuckle Rose, and you hate that movie. Um, I saw and- it. I made the mistake <laughs> of watching it. Why did I do that? But I, I will uh, say that that was one that if it was on – my mom would have it on just for the music while she was folding laundry. Well, what <laughs> of his, she actually I mean, got the uh, got the uh, soundtrack album. One so. of his best known songs. I mean, "On the Road Again" is is on Honeysuckle yeah. Rose. It's a live, you know, live to tape version of "On the Road Again," nominated for an Oscar, reportedly written on the back of an air sickness bag while in flight. I mean, that's one of his signature songs, and it's on the Honeysuckle Rose uh, soundtrack, uh, a movie that I've never seen and uh, don't really have any intention to any time in the future. I mean, it's so well, weird for him that, like, he, he had no songs, um, you know, he, no written hits, at least, at all, for almost a decade at that point. And then he writes this thing that is Willie Nelson's, I think if you asked people these days, Willie Nelson, name a song, On the Road Again. Mm-hmm. It's actually the one they'll say. Yeah. And maybe that's a function of time. But, yeah, he just knew the exact right time to just to find that moment to slide right on it. On the Road Again. Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again I gotta say, the the movie is terrible. The movie is terrible. Those girls are very cute. Um, the album is surprisingly fun, and there's no reason in diving into it in detail because it's basically just a live hoot nanny. You, you you don't need you know you know Amy Irving, you know Steven Spielberg's first wife doing a guest spot. Uh, but other than that, it's actually a really fun live show. If you um, want to compare this to the live album from the 60s we talked about last time, um, what's on Honeysuckle Rose and on Willie and Family Live, yeah. you can see they jam. You know, yeah. the 60s has have happened. They've listened to a little bit, of, at least a little bit of, you know, Grateful Dead style psychedelia. Um, there's the, um, uh, the live instrumental version of Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line, which is, I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's the closest, you know, Willie Nelson gets to being a jam band, I guess. But <laughs> it's still a pretty tight one, you know. And Mick, Raphael is still doing his harmonica thing. And, and it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there's, also, can... there, uh, there's also a song he's like, he, he hides away on this album that I really do want to single out. Um, and I only ever even knew the song existed because of Bob Dylan. And it's a song called Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground. It's just hidden on side three. And I knew it from, it was actually Bob Dylan. It was hard to find for him as well. It was an obscure B-side from his least loved era, like, you know, the post-infidels early 80s era. (laughs) But he was paying attention to what Willie Nelson was doing on Honeysuckle Rose, and he noticed this beautiful song, this beautiful ballad that he wrote about a woman who is exactly what the title says. And, and, And Nelson's version, which is live, I believe, 
uh, is just glorious. And, you know, I like Dylan's a lot as well. But uh, you've got to hear Willie's original. Again, he, he for a guy who I emphasize was not writing a lot, he wrote two truly immortal songs on this record. And everyone knows On the Road Again. I actually think people really should pay a lot more attention to Angel. So fly Also, an era, I just will say very quickly, he has two albums that he does with Leon Russell and Ray Price right around this time. I think the Ray Price one is pretty darn good. Um, their vocals are so different. Ray Price is so smooth, such a crooner. And Willie, of course, is Willie. But those vocals really play off each other very well. There's some neat stuff on that San Antonio Rose album, which was released the same year as the Honeysuckle Rose uh, soundtrack. Put in the market, and too, that, by that's... The way. You were saying, Jesse? I, that's also like the perfect um, album cover. They look so different. Yeah, um, yeah right. <laughs> standing together like that, and it sort of prepares you. But you know, it, they go well together. I agree. That's another. Really I mean, good I actually, album. You, you talk about that. I thought that you know, you talk about Willie standing next to um, Leon Russell. Leon Russell just will look different from anybody because he just looks weird. Period. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got that kind of deer in the headlights. Uh, yeah, kind of right. Face. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, all of Willie Nelson's album covers from. Well, not just this era, but really all eras practically look so cheap. Stardust is a classy album cover, but mm-hmm. man, so many of the rest of them looked at like the cheapest, weirdest things. Uh, and like, yeah, they're just like, it almost looks like, you know, like, you know, bleary 3 a.m. drunken photograph taken of them getting off of an airplane with their gig bags, yeah. right? Um, uh, the Leon Russell album to me is a double record and it's just disappointing. You know, it's just like, eh, I like yeah. Leon. <laughs> It's just like especially generic. the second half. Yeah, yeah the exactly. second half they decide to do Stardust again, basically, and it's like Stardust is so much better than this. Exactly, um, which reminds me, by the way, of his attempt to do it again with Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is, I guess, the first '80s big post Honeysuckle Rose that he does. Mm-hmm. And um, this is like, you know, the title tells you all you need to know. It's it's more standards. And by the way, I wanted to love this album, man. I because Somewhere Over the Rainbow as a song is is both cliche. Like intense, weird cultural reference, and also just a fundamentally beautiful song. And I would love to hear a great interpretation of it that made me recontextualize it and just come at it from a completely different angle. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high. There's a land that I've heard of once in a long 
song Where over the rainbow skies are blue And the dreams that you dare to dream Really do come true I was hoping that I'd get another version of Stardust from this album. And what I got is just way too much fiddle, frankly, from Johnny Oh, Gimble. I, oh, I got to disagree on that. I mean, oh, man. I, I, the title no, I, track is not my favorite track from it, but this is basically his Django Reinhardt um, trivia. That's what, mm-hmm. you know, okay, yeah, but that's what I Johnny love about Gimble, that. There's, there's not enough fiddle. There's too much but, fiddle. But, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Stefan Grappoli, or however you Grappoli, pronounce it. I know you're Grappoli, talking yeah. about, right. Yeah, I mean, like Johnny Gimble, who's like this old-time country. I mean, like going back, to, you know, you know, before the Cold War, um, country <laughs> fiddler does this incredibly impressive um, uh, impression of that uh, grapply uh, gypsy jazz sound. I and, think it's the mix. It's the mix for me that you talked about here. The mix of the harmonica on one of his earlier albums just drove you up a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the mix of this violet, the fiddle. That I, for some reason it feels too obtrusive, but I don't know. Maybe you know I have a tin ear. I don't, it's possible. Yeah, this was also um, co-produced by Freddie Powers, who is one of those underappreciated country um, songwriters. Um, and uh, he worked with both Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard. Um, he wrote like George Jones's "I Always Get Lucky with You." I mean, actually, um, one of those names more people should know. And I don't know. I'm, I'm, I like what he did with it. This was an album I remembered not caring for as a kid, and returning to it um, in adulthood and discovering it was much better than I remembered. There's a um, there are there are in my, in my opinion diminishing returns when Willie mm-hmm. returns to this sort of jazzy uh, style in the future. There are a few albums in the 80s and, and 90s. You don't love so Angel Eyes as much as we do? I don't, in fact. <laughs> uh, but Somewhere Over the Rainbow is is as good of a follow-up as perhaps could be expected. I, I don't I don't mind. I'm, I, I guess I'm more on uh, Jesse's point of view. I don't mind the, uh, the fiddle with the, with the, with the acoustic um, jazz instrumentation. I like Who's Sorry Now. I like uh, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. The interplay there between Willie's guitar and the fiddle is really outstanding. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe it came from you. Um, I mean, the songs are unimpeachable. I mean, you can't object to them. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it was also commercially extremely successful. Again, a number one country record that essentially is rooted in like 1930s jazz. Something that would never, ever happen again. 
Do we want to just sort of run through the other standards albums and jazz albums and sort of mention? Yeah, well, I mean, mention this, is probably, this is probably as good I mean, a time as any to get through them, right? I mean, Angel Eyes. I mean, it's kind of a mixed bag as a as an album, but it's the one time I'm aware of that Nelson did something in a more contemporary jazz mode, which is the Samba for Charlie um, right. instrumental at the end. I'm just I just find that as a as an experiment, it's kind of cool that it exists. The one to avoid is What a Wonderful World, which is more pop schlock than pop jazz. Um, the best performance on it is probably Accentuate the Positive, which is not a great song. <laughs> uh, so it's um, then, but the one I really am fond of, and um, it's Moonlight Becomes You, way up in the 90s, feels to me like volume two of Stardust. That's the, um, I, I have, I think I've listened to that more than I have to. Um, to Stardust, and um, let me. Uh, I, I, you guys, I if you say diminishing returns, so, you probably I, disagree with me. Jesse, but, Jesse, yeah. okay, for, for the listeners, we didn't talk about this in advance, actually. Okay, um, I'm so grateful that you singled this album out because this was my big little like, like trump card to like, yank out at the end of the show to have something to talk about from his later career. This is such a beautiful album. It but is you, great. It, it is, is great. And it is, uh, he, he revisits a couple of his own songs. He opens it with December Day, which yeah. I, that's one I never mind him revisiting, you know, because right. it never became a smash hit. It and always feels God's new, right. you know, and it, it ends with In God's Eyes. And in between, though, I mean, Sentimental Journey, he does a was, great version of. He does that sort of bouncy, um, you just can't play a sad song on a banjo, which, you know, I, sounds true to me, the way you perform that. Now, we all know the violin plays sweetly. The steel guitar thrills all the world completely. But for all around good fun, there's really only one. And it's round and firm and fully packed and puts the blues on the run. And you just can't play a sad song on the banjo. A banjo tune will have to make you smile. And when you're feeling low and melancholy, Pick up the old banjo, by God Cause you just can't play a sad song on the banjo not a, a week um i i mean i just recently um because it was on the uh, centuries of sound um uh, monthly show uh heard like the old uh, glenn miller version of moonlight becomes you with i don't even remember who the vocalist was and i'm like listening to this and saying how could this be the original version or like a early hit version of this song that willie nelson did such a better job with i know okay okay 
uh, this is another point that I really hope the listeners, I don't know, we should maybe kind of find that clip, right? I don't know exactly which version you're referring to, but it sounds like very 1940s, you know, like you know, very twig. You know, Moonlight becomes Willie's version is just this, I don't know how you, what you call it, it's just this very loose and natural, you know, development of the beautiful melody on that. And the beautiful lyric, too. Isn't that the one that actually, I got nominated for some award, I can't remember. It was it was a Grammy, right? It was, was it a CMA, I can't remember. But, like, people, like, recognize, like, oh, Willie Nelson, suddenly he's back again. Moonlight becomes you goes with your hair you certainly know the right thing to wear moonlight becomes you and I'm thrilled at the sight and we could get so romantic tonight you're all I remember this being like this amazing album that came out and nobody noticed. Maybe I just wasn't tuned into the. But I just I just found the thing. By the way, the vocalist was Skip Nelson, so another Nelson <laughs> singing it. Too with many Glenn Nelsons. Miller. To yeah, straight, you know, yeah. very. Uh, and and that one's from is it forty three? Yeah, nineteen forty three. And it was yeah. uh, it just blown out of the water by this. Um, now this was put out on Justice Records. It was on an indie label that he was working with in the nineties. It is. Um, I mean, a lot. I mean, well, we'll get to the '90s and that whole thing uh, later. But I just, I really highly recommend this to anyone who likes Stardust. Um, and then later on, still later, he does a couple albums with Wynton Marsalis. There's one called Two Men with the Blues that I enjoy a lot. Um, and then they did a Ray Charles tribute album, which is fun, but it's really more a showcase for the uh, the band. You can forget Willie Nelson is even in there, but Nora Jones comes in, you know. And then, like, more recently he's done a Gershwin tribute and a Sinatra hit tribute. So this is a well he keeps going to again and again. It just became something he does. Every few years there will be another Willie Nelson um, jazz or jazz standards album. And I'm glad, you know. It, it's not just Stardust. Um, it has its ups and downs, Um there's one called American Classic where, I mean, the high point is basically him deciding to do a jazz version of Always On My Mind, like, where he kind of like drops like the, the premise of I'm doing standards. Uh, maybe I'll just go back to this song and do it right this time. But uh, I don't know. I mean, like anyone want to jump in and either praise or damn um, one of the uh, Willie Nelson jazz records? I, I, don't, I don't love Moonlight Becomes You, and I know the question is why, and I don't have it here in my notes. There's just, you know, so many albums that I was writing about, but... Um, the ones that I do like from this genre are those Sinatra albums, which are very yeah. recent. Uh, My Way is 2018 and That's Life is 2021, though the, the music for That's Life, I believe, was recorded at the same time as My Way. And they're split, not, not perfectly split, but My Way has some of the slower, more mellow Sinatra songs. That's Life, I think, has more of the bouncy, up-tempo songs. 
there's more of Willie playing guitar on My Way. There's a lot less of Trigger on That's Life. So you, you do sort of have a choice to make. Uh, I'll tell you, you this. I expected, I expected more out of his actual cover of My Way. Yeah, that's not one of my uh, favorites from the two albums. Because that song was tailor-made for him, okay? I, the way I, I it's think... sung. Yeah? Once it... Once Sid Vicious sang it, no one else needed to. It's the no. definitive version. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but like the, the sentiment of the lyric, the yeah, yeah. sort of resigned tone, even the, the register of the melody is perfect for his laconic voice. I, I was expecting something more than I got, and so I was a bit disappointed there. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew what I bit off more than I could chew But through it all When there was doubt I ate it up And I spit it out I faced it all And I stood tall And did it my way Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to rain on any world's parade. No, the one I like from probably most of those two albums, I, I like You Make Me Feel So Young from, from the second one, That's Life. Um, really nice horn parts. And again, Sinatra is one of the more influential vocal artists on Willie Nelson, so I think he does sort of find those corners that, that Frank did too on some of these songs. It's late, his voice is not, or it's recent, his voice is not what it was uh, 40 years ago, and it shows but he's still able to really use the, the inflection choices, the, his choice of notes to hit, to really interpret these Sinatra tracks in the Willie Nelson way. And we should probably mention, since the uh, early uh, 1980s is kind of the period we're in, Willie Nelson and Frank Sinatra did work together briefly in this period. They did a PSA for NASA. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to have some fun, go to YouTube and find it. <laughs> I... I had no idea. I can only imagine, and I hope it lives up to the billing. Uh, you know, okay, so speaking of NASA, before we hit the chaos engine and we start warping all over the Willie Nelson universe for the last, what, 40 years of his career, do we want to talk about one of the last moments when he was genuinely commercially re relevant on the charts as an artist selling new music, which is, of course, with his greatest album of all time? Always on my mind. Yeah. 1982's Always on My Mind. And the reason they are laughing, and yet I am not yet laughing myself, is that this is an album that sold a bunch of copies back in the day. You could not more avoid More than it. Stardust. Yeah. We were saying Stardust sold more than Red Headed Stranger. This outsold Stardust. This was his biggest commercial success, certainly for a mainline release album of his entire career. Why? Well, the title track tells you really all you need to know about it. Little things I should have said and done I just never took the time When you were always on my mind You were always
And yet, the reputation of this album is somewhere between, uh, say, rabies and botulism, <laughs> all right, among Willie Nelson fans. It is not loved. It is sort of Chip's moment, you know, early 80s, not even country, country pop, slick, early 80s sound outside of that one song. Everybody who loves authentic Willie just thinks of this album generally as like, oh, I wish it didn't happen. And I'm here to tell you, folks, I really like that cover of White or Shade of Pale. Um, oh, no. Oh, no. I know. That, that is objectively <laughs> hilarious. I, I appreciate that in the same way you appreciated the enormous sounding version of Sunday Morning Coming I Down. Mean, and for the same exact reasons, because you're, you're, you're kind of you're getting my aesthetic here now, Jesse. All right. That is so hilarious to take the ultimate psychedelic 60s song and just make it slick early 80s country pop sound by Willie Nelson. Coming harder as the ceiling flew away. Well, we called out for another drink. The waitress brought the tray. So it I don't know. Everyone hates this album outside of the title track. I kind of like it. It's not a great work. No one needs to hear this weird, warbly version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. But why don't you guys just take your best hacks at it? Look, I'm going to say, first of all, I do genuinely like the song Last Thing I Needed First Thing This Morning. Okay? that Then it was like a number two country hit. Solid song. Not one of my all-time favorite Willie Nelson album. I mean songs, but if I were going to pick one thing from this album to listen to, it would be that. But generally, it's at this point, if Stardust was him deciding, I'm going to cross over and, and show that I can do the Great American Songbook, this is him deciding I can cross over and do bland 1980s adult contemporary. And maybe he had a genuine passion for this kind of music. I don't know. It's To me, the fact that it was... It was produced by Chip's Moman, and the first track on it is Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, which Moman wrote. Which he wrote, yeah. Co-wrote, yeah. yeah. Um, so you figure, you know, it's going to, and this is a song, it's like, of course, Aretha Franklin had the famous version, but it, I mean, country bands have covered it before, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers, I think, did a version. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it's natural for like a really soulful country rendition. Instead, it's like everything I hate about 1980s overproduced pop. And, and and part of it is, you know, I was a teenager in the 1980s. I remember what I was reacting against as a music fan. Um, and a lot of that comes flooding back. A woman's only human. This you should understand. She's not just a play thing. She's flesh and blood. Just like her man. And if you want to do right home days, woman, you gotta be a dude. 
and even I, I, I think I think of I think of Willie covering do right woman do right man and I ask myself he Chip's moment is producing he's he's covering a moment pen song why didn't he open this album with dark end of the street oh which, yes which would have been perfect for Willie perfect for the album perfect in every way could have worked with an early 80s aesthetic too what, what, why that was the song and I'm just thinking that would have been much better much better creative decisions Willie too much weed <laughs> but even even the title track always on my mind one of the songs most closely identified with him so overproduced and the way we know it's overproduced is that he returned to it and I'm not referring to that sort of novelty jazz version that I kind of like that I mentioned earlier uh, this this is me plucking out the obscure 90s albums again. But VH1 storytellers, Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash, sitting up on stage playing you know their big hits, he does a solo performance, just him and his guitar, of Always On My Mind, that is one of the most amazing tracks he recorded in his entire career. Blows me away. Amazing guitar playing, amazing vocal performance. It's the, the only role of Johnny Cash is at the end to go... Yeah, because he's just blown <laughs> away by it. Um, and it's uh, that's what that could have been. should have said and done I just never took the time But you were always on my mind You were always on my mind You were always on my mind You were always on my Instead, you know, it sold a million copies. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, and and I realize this is me. Um, I mean, you're saying everybody hates this album. I assume lots of people love it since it sold so much. And yeah, since we, we, this is a beloved everyone, hit. We're saying everyone with taste hates. Yeah, it's, right. it's, but it's really this is um, of the big Willie Nelson albums. I mean, this is the one that I just can't. Um, I mean, with the partial exception of Last Thing I Needed, First Thing This Morning just can't get behind i've said my piece about it scott you have any thoughts no jesse covered it very well there's no reason to take further wax at always on my mind especially because as, as i guess jesse pointed out people probably do like it it was number one for 22 weeks on the country charts and it was unavoidable and this was part of that uh early 80s country uh pop crossover infatuation right dolly parton and kenny rogers and uh eddie rabbit went to number one around this time with uh, love a rainy night which jeff and i both like uh, but it's it's just part of that wave, and and Willie Nelson was inescapable in 1982. But for most of the rest of the 80s, he didn't find that same kind of success. I'm interested to hear what you guys think about. We don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but it's his first album of new material since I guess 1974, really, tougher than leather in 1983, and you can feel you can feel him. Trying to retrace his steps, I guess, is the phrase I want to use. 
there are a lot of cues taken from Redheaded Stranger. There are a lot of cues taken from uh, the albums previous to that, those two Atlantic albums, too, in the fact you have this concept album with the narrative being pretty unclear or, or tough to follow, these recurring motifs, this combination of new and old songs. You have four songs, I think, on this album with Rose somewhere in the title. I, I think it's um, largely unsatisfying, I guess, is what I'd say about Tougher Than Leather and, and his return to original songwriting. There is one song that I think is really great, and it might make my final five here in this episode, and that is Little Old Fashioned Karma, which I think yeah. is one of the, uh, one of the I, singles from the album. That is a great record. Just a little old-fashioned karma coming down. A little old-fashioned justice going round. A little bit of sowing and a little bit of reaping, a little bit of laughing and a little bit of weeping. Just a little old-fashioned karma coming down. Coming down, coming down. It's just a little old-fashioned karma coming down. It really ain't hard to understand. If you're gonna dance, you gotta pay the band. It's just a little old-fashioned karma coming down. It's just a little old-fashioned karma coming down. I, I can can I say I wrote a yeah. three sentence note uh, in my notes here, and I'll just Go read it to it. you. Yeah. Feels like a return to redheaded stranger, but not as good, <laughs> but much better than always on my mind. And then in parentheses, I like little old fashioned karma. <laughs> so you know, I, I guess we're on the same page. But I will add to that that it's kind. Of, I mean, one thing I kind of like about Willie Nelson as a personality is that. He is so Christian, and then he just throws in the New Age stuff, you know? And it's, it's like, wait a second, you know, karma, how does that fit with the Bible stuff? I don't know, but it's like you take, um, but then putting this on this, it's already a tune we've all heard before. It's been used in multiple songs before this. And um, doing and, and throwing in this concept of karma and making it funny, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, the revenge is what you know, he's talking about. Yeah, yeah right. it's, I mean, that's the standout track for me, too. If you, want a, if you want to dance, you got to pay the band. That's a little old-fashioned karma. Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys have basically stolen most of what I was said. And I, I, I will say that it sounds a lot better you know, than, you know, always on my mind. Um, you know, basically, it's back to his original band, and that's the primary explanation for it. But you know, tougher than leather. I, my notes. I have a joke. It's just like, yeah, that it, it reminds me of the steak I was chewing on that was done like you know, you know, super well done. And that's what's like chewing on this album is like, is that it 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 doesn't really kind of go down in any way easily. Little old fashioned karma is good. I actually tell you, like, Willie Nelson instrumentals. We didn't talk enough about them. We didn't talk about the ending of Redheaded Stranger. What's the name of the uh, Bandera? Oh, yes. that one! Yeah, I really yeah. love. I love that. I like their version of Beer Barrel Polka here. You know, you know, it's 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 it, 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 it's his sister doing it, and it's just nice. Uh, he people don't think of it because they think Willie Nelson. If he's not writing the song and he's not singing it, what is his presence on it? I think his presence is also, first of all, not only playing his his acoustic guitar, but also as a curator and as a, as a, an arranger of this music. Uh, I really love Willie Nelson instrumentals. And on this album, I think it's telling that, you know, his attempt, his big attempt to return to songwriting feels like Neil Young's big attempt to return to songwriting in the early 80s, which is similarly non-starter. 
um, he, something else was needed to, uh, uh, you know, you get him going. And of course, <laughs> you don't need to talk about the album itself, but I think it was telling that the next album he released was something that was called Without a Song, which is a cover as album again. Just you know, saying, so yeah, maybe I don't have with you know, I don't have a song. I think this is actually the point at which to take up one of the other big sort of let's explore the universe of Willie Nelson questions as we end the show, which is to say how many collaboration albums Willie Nelson has done with other artists, not tribute albums or I don't know. Well, do a lot of those actually the, are, a lot yeah, of those okay. are basically you tribute them? albums. A uh, tribute no. album is usually, I, I would consider a tribute album to be somebody who's already dead. Lefty from Zell did not play on to Willie to Lefty from Willie. Right. So that's a tribute album, tribute album, collaboration albums. How do we deal with this entire ginormous subgenre of Willie's music from, you know, from that point to now? Are there any uh, particular albums? We kind of already picked out the uh, most notable ones. That actually, the first Haggard album. What was the first one he did with Haggard? Um, Poncho and Lefty. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, which yeah. is oh. a better album than a single, in my view. Um, we um, can I I there there's a few sort of he has a few duet hits in the early '80s. We should talk about, it, and that kind of fits in here too. So we'll start with Poncho and Lefty, right? Um, this is a song written by Towns fan. This is a, a record I should love. Um, because you've got Willie Nelson with Merle Haggard. My, um, you might think from listening to this, that Willie Nelson is my favorite country musician. He's not. Merle Haggard is my favorite country mm -hmm. musician. And I think he is the greatest American songwriter in any genre and the second best country singer after George Jones. All right. We, gets we've, together. Just, we've just set uh, up a you know future what, you episode. Know, not, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. one, no one can teach you right, but Mom tried. Yeah. So Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard singing a song written by the great Towns Van Zandt. I mean, of that kind of acid Western era of um, of country it songwriting, he's one of the uh, he's one of the leading lights of it. I, I one of my favorite stories I heard it. I didn't put it in my um, in my radio book because I guess I should. I needed. I didn't know how to go about confirming it. But hell, I'll throw it in here and take it with however much salt you want. Is um, uh, he got arrested uh, for in some Texas town? for walking down the middle of the street wearing a dress. And they gave him one phone call, and he called this radio station in either Austin or Houston to tell him about it. I mean, that, that's, that's Towns Van Zandt, you know, this kind of mystic, hippie um, uh, country songwriter, you know. And Poncho and Lefty, it, many people have performed it. It is, when done right, a great song. Poncho was a bandit boy. His horse was fast as polished steel. Outside his pants For all the honest world to feel well, Pancho met his match, you know On the deserts down in Mexico and Nobody heard his dying words Oh, but that's the way The Nelson and Haggard smash it version of it does, doesn't do it for me. It's overproduced in the 80s way. The rest of that album isn't. Um, but this feels to me like, you know, they, they were just trying to get it on. The, um, 
the sort of popped up 80s country radio and the adult contemporary stations too. And and I'm just not a, a big fan of their version of it. Um, there's, I mean, he either did duets. I don't know if either one of you want to jump in with something about that song before I talk about. I, uh, I, I'd only echo. I think you're, you're completely right that the album is better than than the single. It's a, it's a, it's better to be a, uh, better to be uh, ingested as a as a as an album than just paying attention to that single. Yeah, it's got um, one of my favorite versions. I mean, talking about him re-recording uh, his own material, "Opportunity to Cry." They do a full band version that just kicks ass on that. Um, but uh, he also did a uh, duet with Ray Charles, Seven Spanish Angels," around this time. And the interesting thing about this, I mean, the record that was a hit is fine, but there is a live um, performance of the two of them. You can find it on YouTube. Um, maybe you can clip in some of it when we, <laughs> when you produce this, um, of them performing it shortly before it's released, just you know, at the piano. So much better than the version that got released. This was what should have. I mean, it was a smash hit anyway, you know. But I mean, this is what the Willie Nelson Ray Charles uh, duet should be. There were seven Spanish angels at the altar of the sun. They were praying for the lovers in the valley of the gun. When the bell stopped. And the smoke cleared There was thunder from the throne And seven Spanish angels Took another angel home She reached down and picked the gun up That lay smoking in his hand She said, Father, please forgive me and then, of course, the uh, the king of the uh, duets, uh, Willie Nelson duets in the early 80s, the song that was just unescapable in the early 80s <laughs> and my least favorite Willie Nelson song of all time with Julio Iglesias yes. <laughs> to all the girls I loved before. So I, you to listen to that song once is to feel like you've just heard it 12 times. It just goes on and on. And I don't know. I mean, it's probably just two and a half minutes, but it feels like an eternity um, of that boring melody. Um, the only good thing I will say about that is that it produced or, or it led to one of my favorite, possibly apocryphal Willie Nelson stories, which he relates in um, the liner notes to the yesterday's wine reissue that I have is something that he saw in a tabloid. And which was also used as a plot in the John Larroquette show, and I don't know if they stole oh, it from the tabloid I love or the vice John versa. Larroquette show. Thank you for yeah. mentioning it's that. It's been a very oh. long time since oh. I've heard a man make a reference to the John Larroquette so show. So good, so good. What happened? The, the setup is that down in Latin America, or if you prefer, in John Larroquette's uh, bus station, <laughs> there is a rainstorm, and the face of Jesus appears on the wall, and people start gathering. They say holy crap, this is a sign from the Lord. Uh, Jesus has appeared on the wall. It's clear. It's not just like looking at the pancake and thinking you're seeing Virgin Mary. This is, you know, the bearded face of Jesus. And then there's another rainstorm. And next to Jesus appears Julio Iglesias. And they just realize it's an old poster advertising to all the girls I loved before um, being, you know, <laughs> shown up in a, you know, underneath the whitewash or whatever on the wall. So that's a great story. I hope it's true. And it is much, much better than this song. To all the girls who share my life, who now are someone 
the weird drift of Willie Nelson's 80s. Maybe take it a little biographical. Scott, you want to talk about his IRS troubles? Are you yeah. up to speed on all these things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this gets us through a lot of the, the rest of the 80s. How about, I'll just mention very quickly, there's an album that I reminded Jesse about, uh, The Promised Land from 86. And that's probably a little bit better than you remember because much like Poncho and Lefty, the single, which hit number one, Living in the Promised Land, hasn't held up all that well. But the rest of the album is pretty good, considering the era and considering what what expectations were at the time. Uh, the other, his very last number one country hit was "Nothing I Can Do About It Now," which is on a horse called Music uh, in '89. I like that song actually. Yeah, but, it's got a kind of a Cajun sound. I, that, that's a bad album, a horse yes, called Music. But the, the, uh, the less said about that but album, the, hit the is better. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it's the reverse of the Promised Land. But that that leads yeah. us to the end of of the '80s and into the '90s, and. Uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially what happened is um, Willie wasn't paying taxes, his, or at least his manager, uh, the manager of his financial uh, dealings, was not paying taxes to the U.S. government. And they frown upon that deeply, especially when someone as prominent as Willie Nelson is not paying taxes. Initially, uh, Willie owed the IRS something along the lines of $32 million dollars. And he didn't have that money. Uh, they raided his ranch in 1990. They ended up taking a bunch of his tapes. They ended up taking his possessions. There's stories about people buying his stuff at auctions and then giving it back to Willie after the fact. But he ended up getting to a point where they they um, they uh, negotiated down the owed amount to somewhere around $13 million or so. And so part of the way that he paid for it was putting out this album called The IRS Tapes. Who, uh, it's called Who By My Memories, but it's better known as the IRS Tapes because Willie promised the IRS $5 from every copy of Who By My Memories. That added up in the end to around $3.6 million for the IRS, which means he was still pretty short. We'll come back later to how we helped pay the rest of it. But this album is from a, a, a bunch of stuff he recorded in 1984, I believe. Um, and it's just Willie and his guitar. And there are some, uh, it's Willie, so there are some old tunes, there are some new tunes, there are some tracks that hadn't surfaced in a bunch of places, 25 tracks. In fact, he went on TV, there was an 800 number, you could purchase this album on TV, even a But Wait, There's More offer. There's another album that I can't remember. It's like a 1974-something outtake album that was included if you called right now to buy Who'll by my memories. But guys, considering the backstory to all of this, the fact is the music on Who'll by my memories is it's shockingly great. Is really good. And I think those, it's, I mean, most of it is very, very good. The first two songs are like just mind-blowingly good. And if you like those first two, you'll like the rest of the album. The title track, Who'll by my, by my memories. And that second track, I think, is one of the best songs of this entire era, called Jimmy's Road. This is Jimmy's Road. 
Jimmy liked to play This is Jimmy's grass Where Jimmy liked to lay This is Jimmy's tree The Jimmy likes to climb And Jimmy went to war And something changed his mind around It's one of those old RCA tracks that yeah. was hidden away on one of those albums no one bought and he comes back to it. And this whole album is like we've we've talked before about how you know he returns to songs. I mean, I'm mean, even on the um in the first episode we did, we talked about how sometimes the first or second version of the song isn't the definitive one. And so many of these are, and to my mind, the definitive versions yes. of these songs. And all of them are great performances. Um, I this is one of the best albums he ever did. Um, I, I have to reconsider my uh, libertarian belief that you know big government can't create creative action because clearly um, it, it, it kicked him in the pants and suddenly he I mean not only does he create um, one of the best albums of his career but you know in the 90s he's I mean he doesn't have any more hits in the 90s but he has way more good albums in the 90s than he did in the 80s. Um, he's uh, he's just putting out these low-key, personal, and often just remarkably good ones. Um, I mean, this is just a couple of years before Moonlight Becomes You. Mm-hmm. Again, on an indie label. Um, uh, we'll get to some of these, like Spirit, Teatro, um, and then a bit more high-profile um, high one across the borderline. But, you know, suddenly he's being really um, inventive and creative again. I love this album. I'm so glad that everyone else likes it. It's so strange that, yes, the IRS... I was about to side with you, Jesse. I was about to say that, like, I'm so glad we have someone from Reason here who who, who will agree that all taxation is theft. (laughs) Say that Willie Willie did nothing wrong. I I, I will say, apparently, it was, like, just bad bookkeeping because he, like, keeps hiring his cronies, you know? It was not, like, the sort of sustained fraud. Willie Nelson is the Ulysses S. Grant of country music. (laughs) It's just to say, like, he's got friends and, like, listen, he's just, you know, he's just really loyal, man. And he's not a bad guy himself at all. Uh, But, yeah, you're right. The IRS tapes. And, of course, the title track, Who'll Buy My Memories, the title alone is beautiful. And that's not what, of course, the song is about. Out, but it's it's it, it is perfectly put in that sense and and, um, and, this, and did this version of buddy bring you around on the song yeah yeah it yeah. does it does it it's it, it's a lot more real i mean there's there are songs here that i actually came over i heard this maybe a decade ago once came back to it again for the show like a week ago or something like that and of course he does every one of these songs is, is basically a nelson classic I actually like I like this version of Yesterday's Wine every bit as much yeah. yep. as, as the one that he does on the original album. Miracles appear in the strangest of places. Fancy meeting you here. The last time I saw you was just out of Houston. Sit down, let me buy you a beer. 
Your presence is welcome with me and my friends here This is a hangout of mine We come here quite often and listen to music For taking of yesterday's wine Yesterday's wine Yesterday's wine We're aging with time Like yesterday's wine And the same with it's not supposed to be that way Which is the third time he's done it at this point Jimmy's Road Scott already singled out took that one from me pretend I never happened I mean oh that, that's such a beautiful song I'm falling in Faces. I'm falling in love again I, I think all the ones from Faces and Stages, well, Faces and Stages I don't want to say right. they're better but he certainly didn't demean them or diminish them in any way and on Who By My a, Memories and it, it is a, a wonderful testament to how fresh and how exciting it can be to to listen to a truly great artist reinterpret his own music even if yeah as we're all joking now it was uncle sam holding a gun to his head basically saying he, do this he by the way or, he had to uh, he had to plead to get these tapes back these tapes were part of what was confiscated of- by the irs in the in the ranch raid and he, he had to he had to you know work out the agreement give me the tapes I'll release him. You get five bucks per per record. How does it that sound? Like, it felt like such a dire situation that they were going to actually reinstate the concept of debtor's prison just for <laughs> Willie Nelson at that point. How will I know? How will I know? How will I know? I'm falling in love again And if I lose or win How will I know But they didn't, and like, yeah, this stuff is really good. Do we have any other albums from this sort of like, you know, post IRS sort of like, I gotta we, make as much money as possible to get them off of about, my back? I just want to talk about across the borderline. I mean, that's the one yeah. that people really cite a lot. Um, Let me mention real quick, Jesse, because it's yeah. it's a little funny. Okay. The way that he paid off the rest of that debt, because by the time across the borderline is is out, he's he's free and clear from the IRS. He went to Branson. And he played seven days a week in Branson yeah. for like, I don't know how long it was, and just worked his butt off to earn money in Branson, Missouri to pay off the rest of his IRS debt. And he w- and you will make good money in Branson, oh, yeah. Missouri in the yeah. 90s. I mean, there's a loyal customer. But, but that's what he did. And 1992 is, the oh, I think, the only year in his entire career, which is whatever, 60 years now, no singles. No albums in 1992 because he was playing his fingers off in Branson, Missouri, seven days a week to pay off the IRS. And so across the borderline. Yeah. Um, produced by Don Was and Paul Simon. And I uh, I got to ask you, uh, I mean, Jeff, this is where you finally get to hear Willie Nelson sing Peter Gabriel. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I mean, listen, this thing is, I'd much rather hear him sing Heartland with Bob Dylan, which is hilarious because, of course, that's, you know, I I I I I think of Bob Dylan singing his his awkward duet with U two on Rattle and Hum was it Love Rescue Me, and this is Bob Dylan's awkward duet with Willie Nelson, which is far less awkward, I think. And it's really it's it's not a great song, but it's a decent co-write. But yeah, don't give up, man. That song, it's a great song. It's one of my favorite Peter Gabriel songs. But it was made for the moment. It was made for his voice and Kate Bush's voice. And Sinead O'Connor is a great singer, but she was, it just doesn't work. I thought that we would be the last to go. It is so strange the way things turn. Drove the night toward my home, the place that I was born on the lakeside. And as daylight broke, I saw the earth. The trees had burned down to the ground. Don't give up. You still have us. Don't give up. We don't need. This album, I mean, it's generally if there is an album um, by with a whole bunch of duets and collaborations with different people, one of two things is going on. Um, either you're having like someone introduce like these sort of forgotten or obscure people to their audience. You're doing like the nitty gritty dirt band with Will the Circle Bring Them Be Unbroken, bringing right. on all these bluegrass legends. Or and I know where you're this, going here too. Yeah, yeah. or or, uh, or around this time, Michelle Shocked, does Arkansas Traveler, an album I, I really like a lot, but recording with different folk musicians that she likes. And the other is when you're trying to say, all right, well, we're going to try to give this guy's career the, a leg up by right. bringing in all these ringers. The Clive they, Davis move. I, yes, and and you've not yet had that sort of completely standardized by the Santana um, formula. That's a few years in the future, but you can see that's what they're trying to do here. Some of it really works. I think his version of American Tune is great. That is my favorite version of that song. Um, you know, it, it's not a bad album, but things are kind of when you're saying, "All right, we're going to bring on Sinead O'Connor, Bob Dylan, and Bonnie Riot." You know, it, it, it's not. It, Something's going on that something kind of, should work. Like Bonnie Raitt and Willie Nelson, that should work. I think it does. I'm, I think that's one of I the mean, really good songs yeah. here. It, I mean, I'm yeah. not a big, I'm not a big fan of hers in general, but sure, that track works. It's not a bad album, and and again, it, it, it opens with the right song. And I like the Peter Gabriel version better than you, just for the novelty of hearing him sing, um, sing that particular song. Um, but yeah, it's when you know when Texas Monthly did their rankings of. 146 Willie Nelson albums. This was the one where I was just kind of surprised that it got into the top 10. Everything wow. else in the top 10 was like exactly what you would expect, right? Yeah. Um, this and is, then, this close. And it also, by yeah. the way, as, as so many albums from this era does, it suffers from album minus. It's 60 yes, minutes long. Yes, yes. A Willie Nelson album should never be 60 And they usually long. aren't. I mean, that's one of the great things about going through this back catalog is you, you got 25 minutes to burn. There you go. There's a Willie Nelson album right there. But yeah, this is 14 songs at an hour in like so any other thoughts on like Willie Nelson's like nineties and I just well, the nineties awesome. You have the tens and the twenties theoretically, but yeah. you know what I would 
the, sort of, the, the, the tail end of Willie's career, he started doing a little collaborative songwriting here at the end of his career, by the way, you know, which, you know, I, I figure we want to talk about. Before we I, go. I will. I will just give a shout out to three albums that I recommend from this period. And you can either say something or not say something. Definitely. One is the gospel album. How great thou art. Yes. OK, um, well, dang it. Now you, you have a, an, an infuriating knack of stealing my best notes. Jesse. All right. Go, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I actually am really interested in hearing yours. I mean, I mean, I, you know, most of it is straightforward um, uh, gospel performances of gospel songs. Really well done. Him on the guitar, his sister on the piano or sometimes organ. Um, but they bring in that bass player for Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and turn it into a jazz trio. And that's just great. And I don't I thought the bass was in um, Kneel at the Feet of Jesus, too. And then re-listening to it before that, I was like, geez, was I just hallucinating that? Because it's so jazzy. Um, but that is just one of the great reinventions of, a, of an early song, um, taking that gospel thing that he wrote that I was singing the praises of um, last time and turning it into this small-scale jazz thing. And um, th those two tracks alone make it an essential album, but the rest of the album's good, too. I want to say one thing about that Swing Low, Sweet Chariot cover, because what Swing Low, Sweet Chariot needs as a gospel song, as a vocal arrangement, always has been like a deep bass voice, a basso profundo who swings low, right? You know, that's that to, to sound really soulful. You got to have that. Willie doesn't have that. His sister certainly doesn't have that. And that's where the jazz bass comes in because it fills in for that voice and it does it in a completely different way. And that is a really inspired rearrangement. So I'm really glad that you and I had the same wavelength on that song. Looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. A band of angels coming after me. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home And if you get there before I do Coming for to carry me home Tell all my friends I'm coming to Coming for to carry me home Anything else in that album or should I move no, on? No, 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 yeah, keep move on. No, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, also, I, I don't have a lot to say about Spirit other than this, that it's I, I like it a lot. Um, they've got that um, that song, I've Been Too Sick to Pray, Lord. That's why we ain't talked in a while. I mean, it's just uh, which with a tune that kind of recalls On the Wings of a Dove. I mean, it, it, I like that album. Again, I don't have much to say about it. And then Teatro. Um, Daniel Lenoir. I'm never sure yep. if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Yep. Who's someone who... I'm not always crazy about it as a, as a producer. I, I think uh, Time Out of Mind is the most overpraised Dylan album around, um, <laughs> although I like Oh Mercy. Um, but I mean, a lot of his stuff can be, um, can sort of impose a sound of same, uh, a feeling of sameness. But in this, he like revisits these old songs like Darkness on the Face of the Earth, and he gets that echoey Renoir treatment and a real Southwestern sound. Um, 
And I just really like this. I mean, another version of Three Days, another version of Home Hotel. He's done <laughs> this before. I never, cared, but, I never cared for you. What do you think not, of the yes, remix yeah. of that? But I mean, yeah, I mean, but that's probably my favorite of his versions of I Never Cared for You. Um, I, maybe you disagree, but I, I, I really enjoy Teatro. I think it's one of the peaks of this era that we're covering the show and certainly of that decade of the 90s. Uh, Emily Harris is all over the record singing backing vocals. Uh, and Lanois is able to make his presence known where needed. There's a, the, the virtue of darkness here, I think, is really great. It's got this very busy rhythm section, drum section, yet the rest of the arrangement stays, stays simple. And the stars fell out of heaven, the moon could not be found. The sun was in a million pieces scattered all around. the sort of Cuban rhythm to these lonely nights that works very well, yet he's able to lay out what he has to, the, 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 that version of Home Motel. He's, he clears out of that. That's Willie with a little reverb and a piano, and that's it, and it's a really wonderful arrangement. Um, I've just destroyed my world, just destroyed the world. Uh, is a pretty standard country arrangement, but it sounds really good. I, I think Lenoir really, I mean, yes, there are his atmospheric touches uh, there are some more interesting, different rhythmic patterns used in places. But on the whole, it's extremely listenable. It's not quite what you'd expect from William Nelson. And yet, considering what he's done in the past, meaning he's done all the genres, he's tried all these things, it doesn't sound odd or unusual for him to be doing something like this. And I think it is it, it pulled off really well. No one seems to really care if I come here at all. The one who seems to care the least is you I'm gonna hang a neon sign With the letters big and blue Home hotel on lost love avenue I'm really sympathetic to, to Jesse's view that Time Out of Mind is a bit overproduced as an album, but otherwise I do like Dana Lanois as a producer, um, and I really think he does a magnificent job with this. And I actually have always kind of thought of it as, yes, the Time Out of Mind Willie Nelson album. This to me is like the, like, whoa, where was he? And now here he is. Of course, it's not quite the same because this are almost all old Willie songs and not new songs, but the read. The remakes of them are superb. Now, now Jesse already said that he actually prefers this version of I Never Cared For You uh, to the original. I'm not sure I'm there, but I do think it's just a real standout. Considered with the intro also leading yeah, into with it. The, yeah. yeah, with a little French intro. Oh, gosh, it's really good. And, you know, there's there's songs here that you, uh, you, you didn't really expect to see, like, you know, 
redone like my own peculiar way you know they, they, they come back out of nowhere or i just can't let you say goodbye these are really nice haunted spare remakes i actually think of Landwall. okay there are like two like there are twin tracks of sort of you know, revivalist producers going on in the 90s there's the rick rubin scene right mm -hmm. you know with johnny cash and all that and then there's the Landwall scene you know, with like, you know, there's Dylan and then there's Willie Nelson. And I guess, you know, I like them both, by the way. I really like the, the American recordings of Johnny Cash's because you can't really beat Johnny Cash's voice even in his old age. But here, Willie Nelson still sounds as beautiful as he ever did. And I actually like Landwall's more modernistic approach. Uh, it, it, it isn't, you know, uh, you know, horribly slick 80s schlock. But nor is it so brutally slit, stripped down that it's like, you know, I guess like, you know, like a chainsaw sculpture. You know, this is this is well sculpted material and I think it suits his music well. I know you won't believe these things I tell you. No, you won't believe. Your heart has been forewarned, all men will lie to you And your mind cannot conceive Now all depends on what I say to you And on your doubting me So I've prepared these statements far from true They heed and disbelieve is filled with ice and gives no warmth at all and the sky was never blue the stars are raindrops searching for a place to fall and never care for you do we have any thoughts by the way on the i guess i you know before we uh you know, get to the end. We're we're getting to like you know he does like another jazz album you know night and day. I, I don't know if you guys like you know you know his versions of like, nuages and all these really great old like jazz covers. I've listened to it once just because I was like I wanted to hear what the the Willie Nelson jazz instrumental sound like. Uh, not that great, but I don't know what you guys think of like the rest of like, Willie Nelson. I guess in the twenty first century. That's Actually, I, to the end of our show. Yeah, I want to throw in one other thing. From I was I was looking at the list of '90s albums, and I oh, should have no. included. Well, we although it's actually 2001, but but it's before well, 9/11. It's but before 9/11, it so it's oh wow, there you it's, go. It's the long '90s. Um, uh, Rainbow <laughs> Connection, his kids album, where it starts as a kids album, but by the end he's like singing, yes, yes. Um, the, you know, uh, <laughs> stuff about uh, shooting, playing dominoes and shooting dice. You know, this includes the best version ever recorded of and again this does not belong on a children's album just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in um the mickey newberry song people associate it with kenny rogers because of that sort of rock version he did in the 60s but this so-called acoustic version by willie nelson is just amazing i mean are you guys with me on this uh, yes this is, yeah. yes yes somebody painted april fool in big black letters on a dead end sign I had my foot on the gas When I left the road It blew out my mind Eight miles out of Memphis Lord, I got no spare Eight miles straight up Downtown somewhere And I just dropped in To see what condition My condition was in Lord condition my condition was in 
situation my condition was in. It's a good album overall. Rainbow Connection is yeah. one that actually, that I, I was when I was uh, uh, connected with me. D- I remember this as a kid. Yeah, I was when I was working as a DJ in college, and so we got all these new albums, and I did a specifically country, blues, roots, rock, Americana show, and so we got all these Willie Nelson albums. And the one before this was Milk Cow Blues, which is not very good at all. The one after this is the one that it tried to make a modern, and that one sucks. Uh, but this one is very good, not just Rainbow Connection, the title track, which his daughter had asked him to do for years and years and years, and he finally did it on this album. That's an example of, once again, uh, Willie walking in and just owning someone else's song, putting his 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 stamp on it and making it completely his. Uh, I think you'll always sort of hear Kermit, I suppose. But uh, Willie's version of Rainbow Connection is very much, uh, you know, his attempt at a definitive version. It's a great, great version. And then you got like Old Blue and Won't You Won't You Ride My Little Red Wagon. You know, the the, the track listing kind of goes chronological from child to adulthood. Just dropped in, I think, is the second to last track on it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first time, too, I think you hear the beginnings of some of the aging in his voice. And it would get yeah. it would get older as he gets older. But this is the first album where I really can say, oh, he's at this point, what, 64 or whatever. He, he sounds a little scraggly. He sounds a little craggly in the voice. And certainly that helps in some places. He sounds right. older. He sounds weathered when he's singing a children's song like Rainbow Connection. He sounds like he... The lovers, the dreamers, and me sounds a little more poignant with a a leathery voice. Right. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions. And rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. I, I should just, because you mentioned the Great Divide, and I believe the word you yeah, used was "sucks." Yeah. This is I have what thoughts about this album. Yeah, I mean, I mean, go ahead. I mean, I, I was just say this is what "Across the Borderline" avoids being. Um, right. "Across the Borderline," again, I think it's a good album. It just gets a little gimmicky. The Great Divide is when they really try to give him the Santana treatment, and it's like Kid Rock. I mean, what do you, what do you? Rock Thomas of Matchbox Twenty. The album cover alone. Where he's like, he, he almost looks like he's like, like stark black and white. He almost looks like a little thuggy. He's on a wearing a wife beater with his guitar with all these things printed on it. And then, then all and then all of the collaborations. Kid Rock, Cheryl Crow. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> this is this is yes, everything you feared. I agree with you, Jesse. Everything For most of the nineties, if there's a Willie Nelson duet, it's usually I mean, despite what I said about across the borderline, it's usually a young, like so maybe alt country person like Kimmy right. Rhodes. He's giving his benediction. He's saying, I'm gonna lend you a hand by having you have a track on your album that's with Willie Nelson because And what I he's saying to you, you, the listener, is saying, like, here's somebody I think it's worth listening exactly. to. Exactly. It's his benediction. It's it's the opposite of what's going on with dragging in a kid rock to the, to do a duet with him on uh, the Great Divide. Oh. 
So I, I have nothing good to say about that album. I know, Scott, you had a lot of notes about it, but we're going to have to throw no. those away. Are you all right with that? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with all that. All right. So what do we want to say about this sort of final part, this this long tail end of Willie oh, Nelson's yeah. career where he's just been a working musician and releasing albums, endlessly albums. And I won't lie to you. I do not have command over the last few albums of this discography because it's just you know, 120 of them. I, I would like uh, uh, Jesse actually to talk about these last, what, five or six years, maybe a little bit more, where Willie okay. is writing again, and he's writing with a partner in Buddy Cannon, who also produces these albums. There's a string here called the... I do uh, know these albums. There's yeah. a trilogy here, uh, God's Problem Child and Last Man Standing, and one other, the third, I think, is less is not as good as the first two. His most recent one, A Beautiful Time, is this year, just out in 2022. All these, he's writing songs, doing some covers, but writing new songs with Buddy Cannon. Some of these work really well. You see you see and hear some of the humor and lightheartedness return to the tracks. There's one on God's Problem Child, which I think is the best of this, this late, late era, called Still Not Dead, which deals with rumors on the internet that Willie's died. And no, he's, he's still not dead. Well, I woke up still not dead again today. The gardener did not find me that way. And I woke up still not dead again today I run up and down the road making music as I go They say my pace would kill a normal man But I've never been accused of being normal anyway I woke up still not dead again today There's a, a tune called True Love on God's Problem Child, which takes some production cues from Lenoir from, from, the, from that album, and I think is really, really good. Uh, there's one on Last Man Standing called I'll Try to Do Better Next Time. Right There's this winking and nodding at the fact that he's 82, 84, 85, and he's not going to live forever, but he's, he's still happy to be around. Like in Last Man Standing, he says, uh, I don't want to be the last man standing, but then again, may, maybe I do. Uh, yeah. Jesse, if you can talk a bit about what you know about how he's been writing with Buddy Cannon and how these most recent albums have sort of come to be. I I don't know. I would like to know more about the writing process because I, I mean, it almost feels like he, um, they start as an epigram, you know, it, it's like the, every one of them or a lot of them, at least you, you've got like just one single line or one single couplet that feels like oh, that title. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It will often becomes the title. You know, like live every day like it was your last one. One day you're going to be right. You know, it's in this sort of build out from there. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to know about, um, you know, how much of it is Willie, how much um, is coming from elsewhere. Um, I, I disagree with you about God's Problem Child. I, hmm. It's actually my least favorite of the three, yeah. just because <laughs> I his voice is really showing its wear and tear there. And he hasn't quite, I think, figured out. I mean, he feels a little lost in some of them. Um, I, I mean, Still Not Dead is the tra uh, the tra uh, the standout, I think. Um, the uh, Another um, death track um, on it, which not a great one, but it, it's heartfelt, is the Haggard tribute, He Won't Ever Be Gone, mm -hmm. which I, I kind of remember when he and Haggard a few years earlier did an album together. It had a song uh, called uh, Missing Old Johnny Cash. So I feel like there's like this progression for <laughs> one to the other. Well, now you're, he's gone and I miss him too. I'm kind of fond of Delete and uh, Fast Forward. He's got, um, you know, a guest uh, spot by uh, Tony Joe White. So it's a good album, but... Um, I, again, like that's the one where like the 
you know, the, the limits of the voice were really showing with, for me. Whereas with Last Man Standing, which again is filled with, um, with death songs, um, funnier ones, you know. Yes. Uh, I yeah. mean, also Bad Breath. You know, Bad Breath is better than No Breath at all. Um, you know, uh, and what's the one? Heaven is closed and hell is overcrowded. And so I think I'll just stay where I am. Um, and of course, then like mixing the Christianity and the New Age stuff, he uh, drags in uh, the reincarnation for I'll try to do better next time. Um, but he's also mentioning the good book. My next time I might be a preacher or an eagle gliding in the wind. That my spirit will make someone happy When I'm going to come back again And the good book says love everybody And the Lord knows I really have tried So I'll throw a kiss to the ones that I missed And I'll try to do better next time Um, but I think this has more wit than God's Problem Child. And I think he's got more control over his voice's limits in a way. And it sort of makes me start thinking of at the um, at the end of the Rick Rubin period for Johnny Cash, every one of those albums became a concept album about I'm going to die any time now, <laughs> any day now. And then like the one that they release um, right after he dies, like it wasn't like the first line on it. It's like, ain't no grave can hold me or something. But, you know, it's it's he's clearly thinking a lot about his mortality here. Um, and then a beautiful time. Um, there's a, I, I love you till the day I die has that nice line where he goes 20 minutes, 20 years ago. Like you can't remember which it is. I like that line. Um, he's got, I don't go to funerals and I won't be at mine. Um, and, uh, the one where he really makes the limits of his voice work, dusty bottles. I mean, he just growls that and it works. He figures out how to perform this um, as like this old man relaying his wisdom. And, and that's uh, a high point for me. And there's nothing you can do. It's going to happen. Sit down and drink a beer with Father Time. Just to be clear, just to be clear here, because I think maybe it's not clear to those who, who, who don't know. You kind of fast forwarded here a big way yeah. from the from the middle of that trilogy to his most recent album, which literally came out this year. I mean, yes. uh, like uh, four months ago, I think something like he, that. He covers Leonard Cohen. He does Tower of Song, another um, you know a very good cover to my to my taste. And and, he, and there's another Beatles cover. Uh, with a little help for, from my friends, which it, this in this uh, context starts to feel like yet another death song. <laughs> I know, really I know. Different. I mean, hearing it in that context actually makes it work. I mean, you actually, I, I've always been skeptical of covers of that song. 
Because I like the Beatles original so much, but that's a very moving version. It feels very different from him singing Yesterday back in 1966. But, you know, like there's been a whole series of cultural revolutions. And in 66, he can joke about this up and coming pop. I mean, he calls it the up and coming country band and it's a joke. But, hey, they're, they're like the, you know, it was still possible in 1966 to sort of think of them as, all right, these guys are going to be popular for a few years and then we'll move on to the next thing. You know, whereas now you're we're going to the Beatles is like going to is like going to the great American songbook. Well, British songbook. He was um, also he's also yeah. 56 years younger back then. Yeah. I mean, it, it's and it, but it feels like we've all aged. I wasn't even alive in 66. I feel like, I, I, you know, and so the bottom line for me is. I hope this isn't his final album, but if it is, it's a fine one to end on. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we kind of skipped over "Ride Me Back Home," um, which was also which I like. But I, th- I think I think you were correct in identifying the best of the, th- of the three trilogy. Yeah, the- I mean, I mean, the most interesting thing about "Ride Me Back Home" is um, his Billy Joel cover. <laughs> um, he does "Just the Way You Are." And I, when I first, I, I got, that's one of the albums I own as a download. I don't know. I don't feel like I own it. Um, but like when I first got, I would always skip over that one because like, oh my goodness. Because like, I, you know, but now like I listen to it again when preparing for this and suddenly it's like, you know, this is what always on my mind should have been, you know, it's like if you're going to do middle of the road, 80s pop, turn it into a Willie song instead of trying to turn yourself into, you know, Billy Joel or whatever. But yeah, no. A beautiful time, I think, um, a really good album. And um, again, I hope he's got more in him. He's probably going to release another three before this finally actually goes. Before uh, this show before, drops. That's yeah, right. That's right. We have, a really not... turn, we have a three-day turnaround between mixing and release. It's got at least to be one album between yeah. now and then. But if it is his last one, it's as fine a swan song as, as he could hope for, I think. Scott, any thoughts on the ending of uh, on the, the current era of Willie's career? I, I, I think that uh, I think Jesse handled handled it well. I, I said yeah. my piece on those last uh, few albums, and uh, there, there's something, there's certainly nothing embarrassing about a beautiful time. I, I and mean, we're talking about a guy who's been doing it now for obviously sixty plus years. Uh, that is, there is nothing that you'd say just just stop. You don't have to do it anymore. He loves it. He loves playing music. He loves music generally. We, we've talked about all the covers he's done, all the all, all the different genres he's he's played in throughout his career. He loves what he does, and at eighty eight or eighty nine, eighty nine, he he's he's still touring. He's still. I just uh, saw someone tweet the other day that they were they they went to see a show and he was outstanding. So, I want to point this out, actually, Scott. That's the way I would point out. I said, listen, God willing, uh, at the end of next April. Willie Nelson will turn 90 years old, okay? And he is still out there on the road again, all right? Like Bob Dylan seems like the literally the only thing that will get them to quit going out on tour is the coroner. And I have to say, there's no one else like that left, you know, especially of the old guard. These are Those two in particular are the true senior statesmen, you know, country and rock. There's no one older than them that's still left from that generation that has that that sort of universal respect and power and is also still out there doing it every day. I'm so grateful that he's still out there, that he just loves this, that he does this, and that, yeah, his most recent album was actually, you know, pretty good. It's not bad at all. 
I mean, he's not he's not doing another phases and stages that you know at age 89 but listen you know everyone's got a right to dial it back a little bit at you know once they hit you know your double aarp membership which is, <laughs> i figure by the time you get into your 80s you you you're, you're double qualified i figure you get extra benefits it should be at least uh and he's still out there doing it and that's why this is as I said, when we started our first episode, it's one of the scariest shows that we've ever had to tackle, one of the scariest subjects we've ever had to tackle. But I'm so grateful that we've done it. I'm so grateful that we've we've you know broken the seal and that we're never going to have any difficulty handling a country artist again. Next week, we're going to do Johnny Cash in 50 minutes. Uh, I don't know. Although we do have, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it sounds like we have a, a return guest for a Merle Haggard episode sometime in the mm-hmm. future. We can add that to the list, which is which is very nice. All right. Well, it's that time of the day. It is that time of the episode in which we pick our two albums you must own from this particular era of Willie Nelson's career and the five songs that you really should hear. And our guest, Jesse Walker, goes first. Jesse, your two albums and five songs. All right. So the easy thing to do would be to say Redheaded Stranger and Stardust, right? But because last time I did the easy thing and said Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages, I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, first of all, the IRS tapes. This is, it's a great album. These are um, some of the finest versions of these songs. And uh, it, I, I just, we have saying its praises earlier. Go out and get it, you know, help him pay off his debts. Um, and if that's going to take the place of the uh, spare and stripped down redheaded stranger, then the, what will take the place for Stardust, the, uh, for the jazzy side, I'm going to say Moonlight Becomes You. Um, Chances are, if you've listened to this much uh, of these programs, you've already got Stardust. So let me tell you, if you're going to get another one of those, get Moonlight Becomes You. And if you don't have either one, you know, it wouldn't be so bad to start with Moonlight Becomes You. It's a great record. Do you want me to do the five songs now, too, or do you want to do... All right. So, five songs. Um, First, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. Seems pretty straightforward. We didn't talk a ton about his version of it, but, you know, I mean, that was the big hit off Redhead Stranger and it is, I mean, that's another case of him taking someone else's song and just making it his own. Second, the VH1 storyteller's version of Always On My Mind. To me, the version of Always On My Mind, not that schlocky one that he had the huge <laughs> hit with in the early 80s, which actually, all right, fine, great vocal performance on it, but still, this is the better arrangement. Third, the How Great Thou Art version of Kneel at the Feet of Jesus, jazz-gospel combination. Uh, fourth, uh, from Rainbow Connection, just checked in to see what condition my condition was in and finally uh something from the last album dusty bottles that's you know just a nice uh summation of his career wise old man at the end of well hopefully not the end of his life i am i I keep seeing him trending on twitter and i worry that he's dying and instead of people saying no Republicans are going to be very upset if they find out that he's a Democrat or whatever. You know? oh, I can't remember <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, that keeps happening, you know. And by the way, he also uh, endorsed Perot and Nader, so he's more of like a weird hippie populist um, outside the two-party system. Uh, he's the rare Goldwater to Nader voter. It sounds like something Justin Raimondo invented, but um, <laughs> at, at, at any rate... Um, I get that reference, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, But it's... Um, He's still alive, and uh, and but for where he is now, Dusty Bottles is a nice place to plant the flag and say, um, this is where we've gotten so far, and look, I can still do something great. All right. Um, my two albums are Stardust, uh, absolutely Stardust, 
And then I would point toward uh, Teatro from, from the 90s uh, with uh, Len Watt producing. I think that's a really fun one for people to hear and hear some of those older songs, which he's been doing throughout this time, uh, you know, uh, recorded and, and, and arranged in different ways. That's one where it really does sound different. And I think Len Watt does a nice job on the production. The, the songs from Stardust, Blue Skies... Uh, it's just it's a perfect arrangement of that song. It's just it's just unbelievably good. A uh, little old fashioned karma from uh, Tough as Leather, uh, Jimmy's Road from uh, the IRS tapes, uh, the, the version of Darkness from Teatro. I, I think is the probably the best song on, on that album. And then uh, both Jesse and I are taking a song from Rainbow Connection, but I'm gonna say the title track. That uh, wonderful version of Rainbow Connection with his voice just starting to weather and and craggle a little bit. Is it was a wonderful uh, song to sort of end my five on, Jeff? Over to you. Uh, so much vulturing of my my fine fine picks because my two albums have already been chosen. I'm going to take one from both of yours. Stardust, of course. It's a beautiful album. It sits outside, in some ways, the continuum of of normal rock or popular country, whatever you want to call it, music. It's it's just a piece that you should have in your collection. It, it, you put it on at the right time and you will feel like peace in your mind. Peace of mind. It's a wonderful, wonderful record. And it will introduce you to songs that really are, have been American classics for well over a century now, but that you might not even be familiar with yourself. The IRS tapes was the other one I was going to mention. And of course, that was Jesse's pick, and it's a brilliant one, too. Um, a lot of great reinterpretations of songs from his classic songbook, but these are the ones that you want to hear. As for my five songs... Well, I guess I'm going to have to pick at least one from Redheaded Stranger, so I'm going to pick the one that he wrote, which is the only one, Time of the Preacher, which you can hear in three separate versions. It was the Time of the Preacher. It's a very spare, lazy song, a uh, very flat-pick guitar, and, and him just telling a story. But it also is sort of emblematic of what the Willie Nelson conceptual trip was always going to be about. Here's a really random one that nobody even <laughs> mentioned during the show. I'd have to be crazy from the sound in your mind. It's a, a beautiful song that I really I, I, I neglected to mention back then, but it did make my list, and I wanted to mention it now. Um, the Troublemaker uh, spits up "Will the Circle Be Unbroken?" Uh, the gospel tune, which of course is as old as the hills, uh, but I've always loved the the Willie and family version of it uh, from Stardust. Since Scott stole Blue Skies, I'm going to go with September Song instead, which I know is another one of his favorites, and I, I just think it's one of the most perfect covers I've ever heard. Similarly delicate, jazzy, the still of the night. Of just, you know, hey, I mean, hey, it's September 21st as we record this, and so this song has felt especially relevant for me. And, uh, well, I mean, I guess I'm going to end with the same thing that Scott ended with, that, that, that vulture, and it's the rainbow connection. I really do love Willie's old tough, cracked, and aged, leathered version of that. It's very hard to make a song that was sung by a felt frog sound serious. Um, but when Willie sings it with that age and that whiskey in his voice, it sounds like hard-won wisdom as opposed to, uh, as I said, you know, music for children. I've heard it too many times to ignore it It's something that I'm supposed to be Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers and me 
Political Beats look in two parts at the music and career of Willie Nelson. If we miss your favorite forgotten late 80s, early 90s album, we apologize, but there's no way to no way to cover them all. Our guest on this episode, Jesse Walker, books editor at Reason, Reason.com. His books, Rebels on the Air, An Alternative History of Radio in America, and The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. He's on Twitter, at NotJesseWalker. Jesse, thanks you, uh, thank you for helping uh, Sherpa us through the many twists and turns of Willie Nelson's career. Well, thank you for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Jeff, uh, one country down and, um, and well, maybe more country to go, I suppose. We will conquer the entire country someday. <laughs> it will take a long time because the country is deep and wide. Uh, at Esoteric CD on Twitter, my name is Scott Bertram, at Scott Bertram on Twitter. Don't forget patreon.com slash political beat. Support us. Help the show stay ad-free, entry-level, mid-level, and our upper-level best friends for the early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content. Something special coming uh, next week for you exclusive content people. Remastered episodes and more over at patreon.com slash political beats. And now the part of the episode where we thank individually some of our Patreon supporters for their support, not just through this year, but through the years, plural, going back to when we started it all. Thank you to Mark Lutz. Thank you to Jewel. Thank you to Brian Cervantes, Kevin Roth, Matt Fay, Scott McCartney, Jeremy Roots, Steve Singheiser, former guest, Matt McInnes, Ken Sauerer, Dale Stratton, and Doug Llewellyn. Thank you all for making it possible. We can't do it without you at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Subscribe to the feed through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Tune in or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts and find Political Beats. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. Political Beats.